Now entering Nerdist.com. You made it weird. You made it weird. You made it weird. Oh, yeah. You made it weird. You made it weird. Yes, you did. You made it weird. Oh, yeah. You made it weird with Pete Holmes. What's happening, weirdos? This is a wonderful and long-awaited episode with my, my man. One of my good friends and just one of my heroes in comedy and in life, Chris Gethard. Uh, this, this one really does have it all. I'm not going to give any spoilers. It gets weird. It gets wonderful. It, and, of course, it's very, very funny. I'm just so grateful to Chris for uh, taking the time to do it. So uh, get it out of the way right up top. No tour dates. Uh, if there are, PeteHolmes.com. And do watch the TV show, The Pete Holmes Show. October 28th is the first date of the, of the show. It's going to start and it'll be on four times a week after Conan at midnight on TBS, The Pete Holmes Show. PeteHolmes.com for more intro. Here is the, uh, the uh, sponsor for this uh, episode. It's it's called Squarespace, and that is an all-in-one platform that makes it easy and fast to create your own professional website or online portfolio. And for a free trial and 10% off, you can go to squarespace.com and use the code WEIRD8. Not just weird, WEIRD8. Or infinity, if it's stood up. It's like $8 a month and includes, it's not like it is, <laughs> it includes a free domain name if you sign up for one year. Squarespace has over 20 highly customizable templates for you to choose from. You could also say templates. That's how customizable they are. Every uh, design automatically include, includes a unique mobile experience that matches your overall style of your website, so the content will look good on any device every time. It's incredibly easy, but if you want some help, Squarespace has amazing support that works 24 hours a day, seven days a week. So start a free trial, no credit card required, and you can start building your own website. Squarespace, everything you need to create an exceptional website. Thanks, Squarespace, for your support. Weirdos, go to squarespace.com and use the offer code WEIRD8 to support the show. Or go to youmadeitweird.com, get some stickers, get some t-shirts, whatever you need, or just donate if you're feeling nasty. This is it, everybody. Chris Gethard. Enjoy. We going? Hello. Hello? Oh, wow. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> this is Andrew, our New York tech. How are you, Andrew? He creates a mini Katie experience on the East Coast. Do you do, you do all the Nerdist stuff that happens out here? No, he's not affiliated. He's not gang affiliated. Oh, okay. He's freelance. Freelance. Yeah. Who else does it? Nikki and, Nikki and Sarah use you? That's how I found him. Oh, awesome. And we are uh, at the Pod, uh, Pod Hotel, aptly named. Have we started? Yeah. We're recording? <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Do you want a real intro? No, I don't this need one. Made it. Look at how I'm lounging now. You're uh, lounging on a hotel on a bed. bed. <laughs> we, we were talking, and then you put on headphones, and we're still talking. Yeah. That's how your podcast starts. That's how I think. You know, it's funny. I was doing a show once, a college show, and it was only three people. The three people from the Student Activities Council that brought me to the school were the only people that came to the show. So we were sitting in the audience. <laughs> audience. <laughs> we were sitting in the room where it was going to happen. And it's hard. Like, how do you begin? So I, we were just talking. And then in mid-conversation, I stood up and just got on the stage and continued talking directly to them. Because I was like, if this is going to happen, I want it to count towards my time. Yeah, you want to get, you want to make sure they pay you for it. Right. Yeah. Which is a weird thing. I mean, it's not that different from like talking to a comedian for an hour. Who knows he's under the burden of being funny. Really, all the, the only difference was I needed to be on stage. Yeah. And then I did. And yeah. I continued being like, well, Sarah... You know what I mean? And they could like interject. It was one of the weirdest shows. But in my they life. must have had fun, right? Those three people will remember that very fondly. I, think. I remember it fondly. Yeah, I love shows like that. I know you've done. A, um, I must have done a million I've shows done like ton- that. Yeah, between improv and and now stand up, 
I have, yes. I'm so proud of you for doing stand-up still. I know you're very Thank good. You. I think you were in my dream last night probably because I knew... <laughs> yeah. In this room, you laid dreaming of me and now we're here. In this room. Weird. The secret is real. But you did. You were one of the guys that I used to tell of my secret desire to yeah. stop doing improv and start doing stand-up. Right. I don't remember it being stop improv. No, or... or I understand. Merge the two. Merge it in. Become known and I saw less you. as an improviser. Didn't you do it for the first time? At, at my open mic, not my open mic, but at the open mic that I hosted, the first time I did stand up was at Totally JK when it was at Rafifi, Joe Mandy and Noah Garfinkel show. Yeah, and Joe is a very good friend of mine. Yeah, Joe and I are really tight. <laughs> I like where this is going. And I did the show, and he had encouraged me. Yeah, like I had gone and done characters there, and the Rafifi <laughs> scene, you know, was so huge in New York, and it was. You could go and do characters, and UCB people could go and survive there. Right. And I was like, I really want to do stand-up. And Joe was like, dude, stop doing characters. Come do our show and do stand-up for real. So I went and did it. And my <laughs> jokes were okay, but I was so uncomfortable that I put – I didn't even know I was doing it. And I just put my hand in my back pocket. And I just kept putting my hand in and out of my back pocket and like shaking the mic cord around, which I still do a lot. I still shake the cord around a lot. And Joe Mandy, one of my good friends, <laughs> threw you under the bus. Tore me to shreds in front no, of his own audience right afterwards. No. Him and Noah were just like, "Oh, cool. I wonder if Gethard finally got that thing out of his pocket." That and I was just like, "Oh no!" And I didn't do stand up for two years. No, I didn't do it for two years. So they, I, it may have come back at your open mic. Internet. When was your open mic? I don't remember. Joe that. Mandy. I love you. Dude, we all love Joe. I love Joe. Joe. Joe is wonderful. He's a, and, he's a wonderful, loving, prickly little bear of a man. He is prickly. He's like a kiwi with, I like, love with a couple cactus spikes in him. I, he and I always, he and I bonded early. I feel like I have that I feel like I had that with you and bonding? Joe. Like bonding on a level that's beyond You and I have always gotten normal, together very very quickly and very easily. Socially and outside. We can talk about things outside of comedy, which to me is rare. Well, I remember the Mont- South, Montre- South by Southwest. Oh, Montreal. Montreal, just for laughs. Oh my god, I was just there. Yeah, I, I always associate that with the food trucks because uh, we went to a food truck. No, you. This, no, we did. No, we went to. There a were pizza two times place. we hung out. <laughs> no, I remember <laughs> this that thing that we were about to launch into is this the, momentous like, conversation. We, we both remember. You have on. all the details. There are wrong. two. There are two also, times. My name is Chris Gethard. <laughs> Joe Mandy is here with us today. There's two. There's two. One was food trucks in South by Southwest. That's true. That's where we you did, told me the yes. story that you, that you don't want to tell. On the show. <laughs> oh, you're gonna make me tell that story. You asshole. We went outside. We met downstairs, was, yeah. and you said, let's talk about the things we can't talk about, like that one story. Oh, today. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And now you've brought it up three times but and on so the air. Many, you have so many stories. Oh, but now you've set the, everybody's expectations that there's this one, and I'm going to feel guilty if I don't tell it. Everybody's story vagina's real wet right now. Uh, you know what I'm saying? I do. <laughs> the, the other time, seriously, we don't have to do that story. <laughs> the other time was a pizza place in Montreal. And yeah. I thought, because I could have said, let's talk about all the things we can't talk about on the air. Basically, I said the same thing to you. I said, let's go talk about the things we can't talk about with anyone. Because I was in a bad relationship. We both were having relationship We were having relationship stuff. problems. Yeah. yeah. And I think I had just dealt with some... Like weeks prior, and then you were explaining your problems to me, and they were all very, very similar to yes. what I had just dealt with. Well, ball, kind of ballless men. Yeah, spineless maybe yes. is a better way to say yes. that. And we were losing ourselves. Yes, this is a big problem for me. For we, people that listen to the show, know I, that I can disappear in a relationship, and, and just, I feel like we were both chasing romantic notions instead of um, seeing the person for who they really the were. reality of the situation. Yeah, but then I don't know. We've never followed up on this. Well, I know. I, 
I got back together. You did break up after that. I broke up. I think after that or right before it. No, after that. Right because after it. I think we were having. I call it advice from a coward. I often will give people the bullet points that they need, like the exa- you, you know when you hear someone telling you exactly how to break up with someone, you know they've never, they've never done it that way. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. I'd like to say I'm, I'm getting better. I've had a couple. Um, I break up with. When do you break up with somebody? Well, you've been in a long term relationship. What I was going to ask was how many dates constitutes a breakup, like that you have to like call them and like say it in person, where you can't just do the the kind of cruel fade away. You know what I mean? I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. I don't either. know. I'm very. Sh- I don't know. I feel like I have a very strange thing where I will. I think I'm known as a nice guy, and right. I think I am genuinely a nice guy. You sound like me. Um, I say that a lot on the show because I'm always confessing but things. You and are, I'm like, but I'm a nice. You are person. a nice guy. I think that's the purpose of the show is that nice guys do bad things. Yes, and but <laughs> I feel like I've run into some situations where I want to date around, and I've been clear about that, and people kind of don't believe it. People know I'm a nice guy, right? And maybe have sometimes, not always. Sometimes people are like, "Yeah, let's just mess around and have fun." That sounds fun, but sometimes I feel like people are like, "Yeah, okay, okay, we'll keep it casual." But right. they know that I'm. Right. I look like this, you know. That you look like a sweetie pants. Yeah. And at any moment, the real you is going to show up because you've tried yeah. that. Because so after that, I, I don't want to get too detailed here, but I remember we both wanted to break up with who we were with. Yeah. And we both did. Yeah. And then you were single for a while. I was single, and that's when that story happened, <laughs> which I mean, we later followed up I on. Didn't and break you it never up. liked me more. I've never, you never liked, liked you me more. more than when I told you that story. <laughs> no, Should I just tell it? I mean, can't you omit some details? That I would went incriminate? on four dates in twenty-four hours. I went on four dates in twenty-four hours. That's the story. And I don't. There's a part of me, the douchey side of me, that has four never felt. Dates. The douchey side of me that's never felt masculine yes. is proud of it. The normal, rational side of me looks at it and realizes that I was in like a manic fucking month of depression and ill-advised overcompensation behavior Yes, where I wasn't taking my medication and wound up in a situation. I basically was scheduled. Uh, <laughs> you got it out of me. I was scheduled to go on a date. This other girl who had been making Can us... Can I just say? Yeah. The reason I loved you so much in that moment and still love you as you're about to retell it is my therapist talks to me about getting these glimpses, this look in my eye where he hears the like this side of me that is misrepresented. So when I see Chris Gethard, yeah. who, you know what I mean, is, is Chris Gethard. I, I love you to death, but you're not like a macho, get the girl for date on one day no, kind of guy. But, but you have that shit in you, of course. Yeah, and I've had stretches of life, oddly... I mean, the longest, the first 28 years of my life, I was, I mean, the first, like all through college, I was basically like a, a spineless man who had a couple girlfriends who he really loved, but who was depressed constantly and who women could really push my buttons. And then at some point in my late 20s, I did, I, I figured out how to kind of be a ladies man, which I think surprises some people. It's true, though. Yes. It's true. Yes, a ladies' man. In New York City, the fucking Woody Allen thing goes a long way, you know? Oh, my God. It kind of yeah. does. Well, it's an appeal. I kind of have that neurotic New Yorker with glasses. This is something that's been coming up lately I've, in conversations off mic and stuff. I've been talking to people about the idea that people that dress a like, uh, I'm not talking about you. <laughs> you were about to call me asexual. asexual but, I think that's true. I think okay. I'm non-threatening. But as I was saying that, I was like, he's going to think. I, you, you're wearing an outfit that I have this outfit. So don't think that I'm It's I'm a polo saying, shirt and jeans. But what I'm I Shamed. You, 
I'm not ashamed of this outfit you're it's about a to smart judge. outfit. But it's all J. Crew, baby. I was actually. <laughs> we are sponsored. I wanted to say I have a J. Crew credit card. You do? I got that. I'm you obsessed with J. Crew. I get points on my J. Does Crew. Does that come with a lacrosse stick? <laughs> I can't believe you're you are a ladies' man with your J. Crew. I've become J. Crew. I wish yeah. J. Crew fit me better. Their XL is like a joke. They're, this is their size, medium slim cut. Medium feel, slim cut? I feel great about it. MSC? <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yeah. What were your what was your question? I want to tell you that the last polo I bought, I yeah. got from uh Barney's, like the co-op where they have like other yeah. brands and stuff, and I really like like you don't think a polo can get nicer, but yeah. it can. Yeah, polos like, are nice. But I mean like there's something about if you get a polo, I'm sorry, but we're talking about this. If you get a polo that fits you perfectly, you're like, I'm never going to not buy this brand great. of polo. It feels great. It's great. I looked. I used to wear Land's End because they have this like, it's cotton. What the fuck are they doing to some types of cotton? Because sometimes it's like shiny and super <laughs> soft. It's all cotton. This is the most white person conversation we could be having. Land's End a, a is doing something to the cotton. Land's End cotton quality. How are you doing just, in there? You have a huge urban following, right? I actually do have some black fans. They're into it. They They're are loving into this it. Part right they now. love this part. Well, they love a good polo. I shouldn't be generalizing. Everybody's their own person. <laughs> anyway, I am asexual. No. I'm slightly asexual, I think. I'm going to tell you something weird. Okay. That I, I had this epiphany walking to uh, the show last night. Okay. Uh, so I, I went on some dates with this girl who told me that she is uh, polyamorous, which means she likes yeah. being with more than one person. Yeah. Not, uh, I don't know why I'm saying this, but not in the like, I just want to fuck everything, more in the hippie love child kind of beautiful way of like, I think you can love more than one person. Right. So I like this girl. I, go, I, go, I went out with her a couple times, and now I caught myself walking around New York City, and every guy I see, I go... Would I be okay if he if she was with him or him or him or him? You know yeah, what I mean? Like yeah. look at this fat guy. What if she liked this fat guy with the beard? I'm not like that. Look at this guy with the muscles. You know what I mean? Yeah. Look at that guy. What if he has a big cock? You know what I mean? And what I realized, the epiphany that I had was that's not really because I was seeing somebody that's in an open relationship. That's how I am all the time. There's an right. undercurrent of sexual jealousy constantly. And I talked about this on stage last night where I was like, when you get stamps at the post office, it, there's the, there's something happened with a man to another man. There's a thing of like, don't take what's mine, even though it has nothing to do with sex or anything. And that's not because now I'm just more open about it because I'm thinking about a person that would be open about that with me. But really, when I'm in a regular relationship, I'm threatened and angry at all men. Yeah. And that's why I like guys like you and I like guys like... You know, I hung out with Joe DeRosa last night, and I was I was talking to him about this too. I know I'm talking a lot right now, but I'm just saying like he's kind of he's from Philly. He's kind of like a guy guy, but I still love him. He has a soft heart. Yeah. So I still was like playing that stupid game. I was like, oh, Joe is a great guy. If somebody I was seeing also wanted to see Joe DeRosa, I'd be like okay with that. And then I started thinking more about that like beta male sort of thing, that softness that appeals to girls and to guys. You're actually calming down both genders with what we're doing. I'm going to include myself in this sort of beta male, not too aggressive uh, image. But everything we're doing ultimately is to get laid. So you're talking about the, the Woody Allen thing working? Yeah. But it's that, it's that neutrality. It's that alkalizing quality. It's the polo and the jeans that's just like, everybody relax. 
I'm not going to stab you. I'm not going to take what's yours. I'm not really a threat. But really, all of those things that are disarming are really just to be like, won't you come and have sex with me? Because I still want to give you the business. Because once the clothes are off, the dick is doing the fucking. And it's, and it's an aggressive act. Yeah. <laughs> I, do think, I also think part of it, it with that, with the beta male thing is... It allows you to just have conversations with both men and women. Absolutely. The fact I, I have kind of I, I sort of have no hope of being an alpha male, but the way I achieve alpha male status is by just owning that and then talking to people and being that's exactly personable right. and intelligent and, and owning kind it is and, confident. Yeah, and then it becomes something. I think I think in my life, like sometimes. You know, I have this weird relationship with fans of my comedy where they like actively seek advice. I think you get this sure. often as well. I give into it more than more than Most. many, I think. Yeah. But a lot of times, what guys, do you mean? You replying to emails? Yeah, I like answer Tumblr posts and and and, and you can emails answer and stuff. Tumblr posts? Yeah, we'll get asked Tumblrs and then I'll post. I have like an advice column on my on my <laughs> Tumblr, basically. See, I love it. Yeah, I enjoy it. I enjoy it. And a lot of times, guys will ask me for advice. I'm like, it seems like you get girls. I just got engaged, and sometimes they'll be like, you you can get girls. How do you do it? I look just like you, and I can't get girls. And I'm like, you got to be ready to just talk to talk to women. You can't be scared of women. Right. You can't have ulterior <clears throat> motives with women just talk to women and they will come to appreciate you as someone who wants to hear what they have to say and has something to say to them and just be yourself be a kind right and intelligent and interesting person with you things know, to say it's funny that is a lesson that you can learn in show business because that's the same advice you have for like a general meeting or something like i, I those are often like dates but yeah. what you said that made me think of that is having something to say is so important you know, more than just like, I think a lot of people get into that no phase as a toddler, then they never get out of it because it's yeah. a cheap way to have an opinion. I don't dance at weddings. Yeah. You know what I mean? No, I don't. Dance. Like, 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 you instantly look cool or interesting when really it's more interesting and cool to be honest and, and just say whatever's inside of you, right? Yeah. Like, these, these Chris Gethard lookalikes should just say what's true for them because somebody will be like, I'm into that, unless you're like, and I love they, killing people. Here's another thing. You just brought up I don't dance. <clears throat> here's a, a number one advice for, for idiot guys. Guys, dance. Girls love dancing, and no guys like dancing. I swear to God, dance. This is a free podcast. Dance. I swear to yes, God. Okay. If you, if you are a nerd and you want to pick up girls, just go out. And, and if you're like, I don't know how to dance, here's how you dance. Just when music starts playing, start flopping your arms around and shaking your hips back and forth. Because no guys like to dance. And if you're just a guy who's like, I'll go out and dance with you right. so you don't have to dance with your four female right, friends. Like, right. You're a bold guy who doesn't care about appearances. It's and a is huge dude, move. That's a thing that all girls love to do that no guys like to do. So if you're the guy who likes to do it, it doesn't matter if you're good at it. You are appreciated right there. Yes. You appreciate it. My fiance and that I. That advice is priceless. Dude, my fiance was a, <laughs> a professional dancer. Dancer, and I am not a good dancer. I'm yeah. not someone who enjoys. Oh, I didn't dancing. know that. She is. She's. She's a, a beautiful professional dancer. Oh. So we'd go out. She always wanted to go out to these dance clubs with friends of ours, and I just had to immediately when I. I was just like, oh, yeah, cool. I love dancing. Yeah. And we just went out dancing. I don't love dancing. It makes me very self-conscious. But I danced with her, and the first time I kissed my fiancé was on a dance floor. Oh, come so on. On a dance floor, dancing. Yeah. But where did, we got that at some point. I know on 90210, Brandon, uh, Brandon Walsh didn't dance. Mm -hmm. And I remember mm -hmm. being very young and being like, cool guys don't dance. Like, I can't think of... There's a million examples, I'm sure, where guys go, I don't dance. I think Don Draper doesn't dance. But that's not. I'm not Brandon Walsh. I'm not. Don and you're Draper. not Don Draper. I know. He I can better be start like, dancing. <laughs> and you know who I am in the 90210 world? I'm Brian Austin Green's friend who died at the yeah, end yeah, of the yeah. first season. Scott. That's who I am. I'm you're Scott. Scott. 
That's you, honestly the mold I fit. Yeah, the character that was so uncool, they had to kill him because he couldn't fit in the world. Well, probably because they were like, this will be a great season finale. I think that yeah. was the season finale. And I, re- I still remember the promos for it. They were like, one of these people dies, and they flashed to Dylan, Brandon, Brian Austin Green. And you're like, nope, Scott. nope, nope. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely not died. Maybe Brian yeah, Austin yeah, Green. Yeah, yeah, he could have gone. Yeah, David Silver, baby. I thought I related to him, but I, I don't. I, looking back at 90210, I think I, I, think I was a little... No. I wanted to be Dylan, but I was mm-hmm. more like Brandon, but really I was Scott. Ian Ziering, who played Steve Sanders, raised in my hometown. Really? As was Scott Wolf from Party of Five, as was Mike Pitt, who was on Dawson's Creek and uh, Boardwalk Empire. This is in Jersey? In West Orange, New Jersey, as was David Cassidy, who was on the Partridge Family. A long lineage of teen idols have been this is, raised in my town. This is the town where there's a, a house with candles? Oh, no, that's in Long Island. The, <laughs> the, the, you're talking about the Satan house of of Massapequa, North Massapequa. I'm going to write down beta. I forgot to make one point that I made on stage about that that polyamorous jealousy thing that uh-huh. I was feeling. Just a mental exercise of jealousy. I was. I woke up in the middle of the night last night and I wrote this down because I, I, I talked about this in stand-up and I was like, maybe this is a bit about that undercurrent of jealousy and, and possessivity, right? Yeah. And what I wrote down, I didn't even write it down because I didn't want to turn the lights on. I said, Siri, make a note that says, um, this person is mine leads to this land is mine. Meaning... I, I, in the middle of the night, it made perfect sense that uh, sexual possession yeah. is the backbone of all war and conflict. I know that's kind of maybe an old idea, but owning a person, and this is going to sound very like Native American or whatever, is as preposterous as owning land. It's like an imaginary contract where you're like, this shit is mine. This idea is mine. I own this thing that by rights is living and filled with light and has an energy all its own. But I'm like, that's my shit. Get your hands off it and get out of it. Either way, you want people out of it. Yeah. Get out of my land and get out of my girlfriend. Yeah. You know what I mean? Oh, I definitely have and that. I, I definitely have that. What? That possa- well, For that's what I'm saying. For as male as I am, I jealousy. Do, I, not even jealousy. You know, because there is the thing. If we're if we're talking, if we're getting all hippy dippy about it, I feel like there is the thing of we. Uh, you know, it's it's cliche to say, but we are animals, and I feel like you you know Neil Casey, right? Yeah, Neil Casey. He's yeah. a fantastic improviser. He's writer right, on uh, the old SNL right now. Amy Schumer right now. Oh, really? Uh, but he was right on SNL. Amy Schumer right now. He's fantastic, and he he's like a man of science. You know, and sometimes I'll pick his brain about that. And he told me about this one study where. Basically, it was some convoluted thing. I won't be able to explain it well, but epileptics have a separation in the two halves of their brain. Mm-hmm. So scientists are able to do studies on these certain types of epileptics. If I remember this right, I may be misquoting this entirely. But You'd be in good company. Yeah. I misquote shit Apparently, all the time. Apparently, I think it was a t- certain type of epilepsy where scientists can look at exactly what the two separate halves of the brain do because they're not connected in the same way as the average brain. Oh, the Pacific Rim monsters. <laughs> the Pacific Rim. <laughs> the, the robots. Yes. I saw Pacific Rim. I loved it. I thought it was good. Oh, I thought it was good too. I saw it twice. I thought it was great. Um, but... <laughs> It basically, the study showed that the they... The first time I saw it, Common was there. Really? <laughs> yeah. Oh, you moved, You so moved to L.A. if you're saying that just to say it. Why it's did you just tell coolest. me that? That's not the coolest. It's not? No. Oh, God. I went to a movie with Common? That's common, what it's I didn't come go to? to Common. Like, Common... What? That's a story. Common sitting behind you? Oh, God. It's not a story? Dude, I'm embarrassed. Six or seven years ago, when you were in that tiny shared office on 23rd Street, I never would have, you would said not Com- have told me that story. If Common was in the theater when I saw what six years ago when it's I saw Common, Common, but it's very it's very rare to see Common. <laughs> uh, 
<laughs> I'm sorry, but when How's I think about going? that movie, how do you like it? Is it going well? This podcast? Yeah, I'm already in love with it. Because no right before we started, you you said something that made me realize that if you don't like it, uh, I'll know. So I want to really step up my game. I want to step yeah, up my game you're and please see, you. To be fair, I should tell you that I, if the episode ends early, it might be an indication that I'm having a harder time pulling it out of the person. Yeah. That's not always true. I will tell you the truth. Kirk Fox was about a 90-minute episode because he banged it out. He just he, he just got dropped. the job done. He got the job done. I, we sat down and he started going. I'm so insecure about. I know, but the time isn't necessarily. I'm gonna look at the time code and I'm gonna I wonder did, what I you felt. Stupidly, I'm so <laughs> honest with you. I don't know why. I was just like, you know, I asked Andrew to give me the light at 90 minutes, and I was like, you'll know if it's not going well if I wrap it up. <laughs> And it was a joke. You said that right in front. It was it not was, a joke. It was, it was kind you of a joke. You basically said, give me a light at 90, and then if I'm not having fun, we'll end it there. You said that right in front of me. We are in the tiniest room. We could not be in a smaller room. I don't know why there you're bringing it out in me. There is no way. Honestly, am I, actually, I lying? There's no way in this room for me to be farther away from you than seven feet. That's true. That's the farthest away I could be, and you we said are that in right the in worst front of me. Hotel. If you open this window, it's just an alley filled with garbage, like free-form that garbage. That it's, it's a real shit hotel, and I hate it. I also like that there's a safe in this hotel room. Yeah. Because I feel like if you're staying in this hotel room, you, by definition, don't have valuables. <laughs> That's how you can crawl into it when shit goes down inevitably in the worst hotel I've ever stayed in. I hate it. Anyway, I am loving this episode. Oh, and good. I'm completely, I really am. Good. There's, but we've always had that effortless quality. What we were talking about, we were talking about, you were telling me about beta oh, stuff. Oh, the, and the, the a- epileptic. Basically, Neil was Look, telling Look, common is a good story. <laughs> Neil was telling me that when they study these people's brains, they can get them to shut one of their eyes, and then they're only communicating visually with one side of the brain or the other because uh-huh. the connection is not there. Right. And you can show people different images that are in a context by allowing them to look with both eyes, and they'll be able to understand the context. But if you only show them with one eye, they will just make up their own context to rationalize what's happening in their world. Hmm. So a lot of our instincts are just animal instincts we're acting on all the time, and we're actually just justifying them with civilized reasoning. You know what I mean? I think I understand. Like we you might you might take a left because you see a woman you're attracted to and you just want to you're like pretty woman who I'm attracted to I want to walk in that direction and then right. after you've turned the block you're like oh I want to go to that deli. Oh you'll justify it after the fact. It was an animal instinct that made you take the action and That's then a New York thing. because you're in civilization yeah. you make a civilized choice to justify your instinct or that you, you didn't even consciously have. Asking you you want to you want to you want to fuck somebody and be like and then I'm like would you like to drink coffee? Exactly. Yeah yeah yeah. I, I, that was the <clears> point Neil <throat> was making to me is that we constantly have unconscious desires and instincts right. and thoughts that you're rationalizing with your brain to cover up the fact that you're a fucking animal that just wants to come all the time. Right. Yeah. But I mean, uh, going, keeping it on the, the polyamory thing, I think there's the argument that we're like closely uh, tied to bonobos or whatever. I got to read Sex uh-huh. at Dawn. I, this is me misquoting something. That's what I'm fair. saying is there's examples in nature of people, of cultures of these bonobos. Yeah. <laughs> the funniest animal that are doing some serious fucking and being like open in their relationships. Now, look, I'm so 
uh, I get so uncomfortable talking about this stuff. I don't want you to think that this is necessarily my cross to bear. I can't represent it that well. But, but I, I'll do the same thing. I'll be like, well, we're just cavemen. Like cavemen are like, this is mine. Get the fuck away. Your dick is designed to pull out a competitor's cum. That's what the, the tip of your dick is designed to pull out other people's semen. Because by nature, we're competitive. Is that true? Yeah. That's oh, why wow. you have a rim around your dick if it's anything like a human dick. I've also heard that <laughs> when babies are born in the earliest stages, they tend to look more like the father and will generally oh. only outgrow looking like the father if they're going to wind up looking like the mother. And that's because we are built – it's basically so the father will say, I guess that's mine. I right. should love it. Right. That's fascinating. So I understand that that sort of possessivity, if that's a word, or mm-hmm. jealousy – is, is uh, a little bit genetic. I understand that there is. A we kind are of, right now having an ill-informed, an yeah, ill-informed discussion about <laughs> genetics and human nature. But if, uh, you know, in our defense, you look like a guy who should know a lot about genetics. You should just be talking to Neil Casey if you want to have that. <laughs> I'd love that to have story. him on. It'd be great. I, know, I bet he'd be he'd awesome. He'd be fantastic. You should get him to tell that, the real version of that story. I will. And look, it is a little bit frustrating uh, because we aren't experts, but there are people. But my thinking is we should do better than our base level. I think in that, I think, is why we're talking about this, because I think you and I share that. And I what, think that what, we want to do better than cavemen? And I think like that's basically what how we got into it was because you, you have constantly marveled and laughed at the fact that I once went on four dates in yes. 24 hours. But I think the reason I was able to do that and why four <laughs> women were attracted to me. And it, I, was not, I was not doing – I did not go on the four dates to be an asshole and go on four dates in 24 hours. There was legitimate <laughs> scheduling concerns oh. where people were going in and out of town and could only meet on that day. So I had – if I was going to go on dates yes. with certain uh, women yes. of these four – That you wanted had, to. I, that I had – I, I already thought about how it would be fun and nice to date these pretty girls. But you had also been in a long-term relationship. I had. Like what, your whole life? I Not had, your whole life, but like your whole adult life? At that point, I'd been in a relationship for like five years. Okay, so I got out of it. And if can I interject some meaning here? I don't know if this is accurate, but you're getting bigger. Your star's getting bigger at UCB. You're feeling at UCB. A, a yeah. li- I'm not saying you're uh, you were famous or anything. I'm just saying. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, my friend, who has become famous. I'm not famous. You at are all. about to be so famous. <laughs> That's what you told the woman in the elevator on the way out. <laughs> You, you pointed at my uh, face and went, taller than me. What? I pointed up at you like you're one of the heads on Mount Rushmore. Yeah. <laughs> you really were right in my face and went, look for him in the fall on TBS. <laughs> but the woman had said, are you guys, because we yeah, had been talking true. about this, and she said, are you about to go do a comedy show? And you said, oh, I have a podcast. And then yeah. she got off and I said, look for him in the fall. Yeah. TBS. And then she said something that I have no idea what she said. I said, yeah, we're going to go record in one of these tiny rooms. And, and it's just one of those moments where she was like, well, backwater, Sarah Simmons, and uh, yeah. keep it on the stove. <laughs> yeah. like, okay. And she's gone. I, I, yeah. And I'll never know what she said. Yeah. But, um, okay, so keeping it on. Oh, so what I was saying was you were probably the, – the, one of the healing qualities of comedy is it can give you – and this is going to sound like it's negative, but I don't think it is. It can give you some of that love that you get from an audience. And you start getting your fans, your geth, geth tards? The geth tards. Although they don't call themselves that. Because I mean, it's insensitive? They, yes. My fan club has changed their name due to insensitivity. To the mentally... The geth heads. Which geth I don't heads. like as much. Geth heads. Horatio Sands started... Call, I started having this like <laughs> cult thing <laughs> where people would come to all my shows in New York and Horatio Sands dubbed them the geth tards. Okay. And, and then they, they took they... that ball and ran with it. But that original generation of kids no longer... 
generally all my fans I tend to have fans who are like between the age of like 17 and 23 hmm. and new people in that age range tend to keep finding me and then as people grow out of that huh. they tend to move on you're like a college I am you go, you I go appeal to, to a, a demographic but I think that is expanding and widening yeah well, of course it is so my point was, I th- not to point out you not being famous, I, but in New York, you were certainly a type of famous. I have like a cult yeah, thing in New York. Yeah, that was very yeah. enviable. I, I, wasn't, I didn't have negative envy. I was like, that's fucking awesome. I, I saw that. Thanks. I saw that happening for Aziz, too, at the time. You know what I mean? I Aziz was like, was like so quick, though. It was super duper quick. Mine, I'd been around for like seven or eight years before it started. You were the mom and pop, and Aziz was this Walmart that just came and kicked ass. I'm not saying Aziz is shallow and, and not. Like, but no, yeah. he, he, he just came, showed up and popped. In a way that was like... Oh, that's the blueprint other people should be aspiring uh, and to. And that was the blueprint. Bru- uh, <laughs> I think for a lot of people. I think for oh, yeah. so many of the Rafifi comedians and the UCB comedians. Uh, Aziz, a rising tide, man. Uh, what he was doing, I straight up, I, I say this on the show all the Everyone time. Everyone did. I Burger Kinged him. He was McDonald's, and I was like, I'm going to open where he opened. You I had started to. making short videos. I started going up where he went up. Aziz helped the entire New York City And he was uh, also one of the first guys who. Um, he was one of the first guys who was like a stand-up and doing hardcore UCB stuff. Yep. He was one of the first guys who managed to walk that line and right. show how every – he didn't need to be on one of the improv teams at UCB to be a big part of that community. I know. That's, and I think people went in both directions in a way that he opened a lot of doors. That's completely true. I remember like Anthony King directed his one-man show and I was like, Anthony King – like Anthony's still a friend of mine. But at the yeah. time, Anthony was like, holy shit because he was the artistic director of the theater. Yeah. And I was like, look at his ease. He's getting in there. Yeah. And I was like, I got to get in there. And like, then I feel like I like that allowed me to start going over to the Rafifi scene right. and and that allowed like you and Mulaney and Kroll. Although Mulaney and Kroll, I think we're already doing that to a degree. We were all doing it uh, a little bit, but then but it became feels more like serious. He kicked the door down. Although I feel like that's sadly kind of slowing down. What is the all that? Crawl- I feel like the New York scene is fragmenting again because of all that payment stuff, which is boring. Oh, the UCB contract. We don't need to get into that. I'm sure it doesn't actually come up that often on the show. It's not that interesting. I read something but it's, you it, wrote. The sad thing to me is that it's fragmenting people again. Yeah, well, uh, I, I, just to bring people up, because I don't think necessarily everybody knows that, people got upset at UC because they don't pay. Yeah. That, I actually love uh, that discussion, and for an unlikely reason. I really think that there's something kind of uh, mafia about uh, comedy. Yeah. And there's something that really appeals to me about the, the weird hat-tipping and hierarchy and the guys, like, uh, running errands for the bigger guys and all that sort of stuff. There, there isn't a lot like that in my life. So I'm just speaking yeah. for me. Yeah. I also, uh, you know, I was married when I was performing, so I didn't need to get like she had a job. Like we were living yeah. all okay. Yeah. And uh, I've heard I've heard you mention that before that I'm married. That you were, yeah, yeah. <laughs> were you fucking with me? Yeah. <laughs> you fucking asshole! You're a good actor. Because <laughs> I thought it was like, wow, are you being tender right now? No, I'm being tender, but I've, I've heard... Uh, you do tend to bring it up. Damn, you son of a bitch. She hasn't been coming... Well, I looked at Andrew like he's Katie. Hasn't been coming up that much. But here's the thing is, one of the reasons I'm unqualified to talk about the payment thing was I was on uh, Best Week Ever right away, almost right away yeah. when I got to New York. So I was making... Uh, it was like $500 a week. You're, so that's great. You're golden, you, yeah. And then my wife also had a job. My wife... Also had a job. That was when you used to have to take the old Metro North home. I remember that. Well, that was towards the end. That was towards. That the was end. right towards the end. That yeah. was you putting in the effort to try. That well, that's a different right? story. I mean, if you want to hear that story, I'll tell you that story. But I mean, like that is a different. That was that was a different thing. That was crazy. That was only four months. That was when we first met. 
That was when you well, took Chris, a class from me at UCB. That's, I told you this a little bit uh, when we when you did my live episode, which was by far one of the best live ones ever, and you were one of the best live guests. I'm ever. glad it was one of your best live it was ones the best. ever. But goddamn, did yeah. you fucking throw me under the? Sh- I mean. <laughs> A bus is not a powerful enough vehicle to explain the level but of then, terror you rose in my system. But then what? A week later, Judd Apatow sent you a picture of him reading his reading your Which book? Which was so nice. Right? He's, and he's been – I've run into him a few times since then. He's always been so kind. Right. But to have that all happen in front of a crowd. I forgot that that like, happened. I was already feeling in over my head just to be performing at South by Southwest. Right. I already felt like to me that was like I was reaching a new et- – oh, I just turned off the lights. <laughs> Shoulder. Keep them off. Keep this them room off. is so small. Should we talk in the dark? I mean, it's changing the tone. <laughs> Neil Casey is right. I'm justifying what happened. Do we want, is that an interesting experiment? Will we tell more? Hard, I'll tell you more honest shit. I already feel like I can get away with saying more. Yeah, yeah. I know. Keep them off. Keep them off? Okay. <laughs> we'll keep the lights off. So, John Apatow. It was just so... I was already it's feeling like... black in here. It is. Um, well, I, I'll tell you this, because I, I feel very insecure about my place in the world of comedy. You do? And I do. I do. Because I feel like I feel like I was like kind of like the UCB guy who's like branching out. And I feel like all these uh, – like the stand-ups all knew me. And I was kind of like this linchpin of these different communities. And then everybody from all those communities is gone and I'm still around. Hmm. And I've always felt like a lot of people move on and I haven't. And, uh, you know, that's – I don't sit around crying about it, but it definitely can throw you for a loop. And to be at South by, I was like, all right, this is cool. This is me spreading my name into a different area. I feel accomplished here. And I was already feeling like I got to bring the adrenaline and the energy and really be on my game. And then the next thing I know, you're (laughs) fucking telling Judd Apatow you should option my book. And Kumail is just making fun of that as an idea. Kumail's just mocking that possibility. You know what I mean? Yeah, I do. I'm glad the story ends with him reading it. Like Kumail was treating the idea that John Apatow would like my book as as if it was like time travel. Well, I remember the joke because your book is called A Bad Idea I'm About to Do. Yeah, Kumail Kumail said said optioning your book is a bad idea Judd Apatow won't do. Something, something along those like lines. That. He said, <laughs> if you option it, you can say it's a bad idea you're about and to Kumail do. And Kumail is so nice. I know, on he stage, commanded you. On, but dude, on stage, because people, people fucking love picking on me, man, because I can take it. I like taking it. I know it's funny to watch me fucking squirm. I get that. And I'm way too over-honest on stage, so I'll just let the audience see my hurt. And they love that. But Kumail, I'll never forget, I believe Judd Apatow was sitting between us, and Kumail Lean behind him, put his head on my back, and went. I'm so sorry. I had to. I ha- it was sitting right there. I had to. I'm so sorry. Behind Judd Apatow's back, and I was like, "Say that into the microphone that is too. So funny. Say that into the microphone that too." Is so funny. No, nobody ever apologizes on stage. I know. They just pull. Well, they, they just do off mic. on stage. Well, it's okay. So that that what, what I was going to say was when we met. Yes. Uh, was what, what you were my improv teacher? Yeah, and I think I already brought this up a little bit on that live episode. Uh, and it is weird that it's dark, and it's, I'm noticing like a baby, I can't read your facial expressions. Yeah, so that's making it different. It should maybe add, an, maybe it'll add an interesting tone to this. No, by I'm the end, into right? it. I, I'm, yeah. I'm into it. Like I've always appreciated that you are uh, like an experimenter like that. I remember you had a class that you taught, and you would. I, I don't. I didn't take the class, but you were like, I'm teaching a class, <laughs> and like you were saying it so deliberately. You're like. Where we are going to decide what we're going to do, and we're going to do something that is impossible. Yeah. Right? That class turned out awesome. Did it? Yeah. And I don't always love teaching. I only return when I have an idea that I want to get off my chest now. Right. 
Well, I remember you being upset that I was like, you're the greatest improv teacher. I hope you're always doing it. And you were like, don't curse me like that. I appreciated you saying I was the greatest improv teacher because that does feel good. But when you said, I hope you always do it. Yeah. It felt, that felt. Of course. There was a pang of ice called terror with that. I didn't even mean, because I forget that people uh, think of like, oh, I'm teaching at UCB. It's almost like, uh, I guess like, well, it's you still have pond. a day job. It's, it sounds like a big pond and it is yeah. to some degree a big pond. But when you... At the end of the day, as you spend more and more time there, it becomes a smaller and smaller pond. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I definitely wanted to move on. But I will say at this point, I feel like I've gone for it enough that if I do wind up teaching, I would be content with that. Back when you said that, I felt like I had not had the balls to really go for it. Right. And I don't think many people who know me in my life now can argue that I haven't gone for it. Sure. You know? Of course. So now I feel more content with the idea that I have a place that I can land and will be happy with, you know? Yeah, I, although I, I, I feel like you're... Uh, I don't think that's going to happen. I don't either. Okay, yeah, But yeah. if it does, I'm, that's fine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And but, if it does now, I think it would be more of a choice. It would be more... Sure. It would be a choice for me to... If, if teaching improv classes and spreading word of this thing that I love is the worst that happens... Right. And that's what I want to do instead of constantly sweating it out and chasing brass rings... Yeah. That's what that would be now. It wouldn't right. be that's all I was allowed to do. Right, you know? right, right. I just remember when I said that, I was like, the way that I've taken improv at three or four different theaters, and you were the first teacher that I was like, oh, this guy gets it. <laughs> nice. That's awesome. That feels great. That feels really great so to So when I was like, I just hope you continue to give that gift to people. Because I, I, I think I've told you this many times, maybe in person and maybe at the live episode, but I was like, you were the first one, because I had been with those people for three levels. I think. Yeah, you were yeah. my level three. Yeah. And and look, it's not the worst thing in the world, but there were people that had all these like really glaring uh, crutches and flaws and fallback As techniques. teachers? No, no, no. As, uh, as improvisers. Yeah. And I was like waiting. And look, Zach and Lennon were my one and two, and they were very nurturing and sweet. And they were great. I'm not saying they fucked up and should have said something. I'm not. No. And Especially not levels. Lennon, because that's level one. Yeah. And Zach, I, I don't think maybe that was, maybe it didn't bother him. You know what I mean? And yeah. then level three, we're doing these scenes. And like, I just remember you just started shooting people in the fucking face. It was amazing. Wow. Well, and me too. Like everybody. Oh, I it to you. I know you did give well, me the, the business. Well, the people who were the best were the ones who I would hit the hardest. Because yeah. I feel like if you hit the best people hardest, then the worst people can't feel like you're picking on them. There you go. And then you can go at the worst people. <laughs> You know what I mean? It's true. But then everybody gets better and everybody yeah. sees that it's fair. Well, you, know? you, you were the hard teacher. Like, I had this teacher in high school named uh, Mr. Brown who, like, really was a hard ass. And we loved him. Like, it's, it's when you get that mix of somebody that really holds you against the coals sort of thing. But then, like, for some reason you love them. That's a great combo. Because yeah. you're going to learn a lot. Mr. Brown, man. Yeah, that's right. You're improv, Brown. Yeah, I feel... I don't know, man. I feel like improv... I don't know. I feel like it's becoming... I don't know. What do you think? I feel like people are starting to regard it as a cheesy thing again, where it has it had risen above that for years. But I still believe in it, and I love it, and I think it's at the base of many types of performance that I love. Hmm. Um, that's interesting. I, I When you say that, I'll just say on a gut level, and I don't know why, I kind of agree with that. Yeah. And I'm not sure why. It feels like it. I think when you and I were in New York uh, at the same time, there was a little bit of a renaissance going on where and, it really was a special thing. Yeah. And, and maybe, everybody has left for L.A. now. Well, that's the thing. And that's what everybody. I was going to ask you. Is I don't, when you're talking about feeling left behind, I'm like, why do you still live here? Yeah. I mean, it's true, right? I think if I went to L.A., I'd have more friends there who could, I could network with better, have yeah. more opportunities for jobs. And I think I'd do well. I think You'd I'm do great. liked enough and I've booked enough stuff here acting-wise and writing-wise. But I don't know. I love New York and um, 
you know, I grew up an East Coast guy, and I do feel like I've stumbled. You know, we haven't mentioned it, but I do this public access TV show. I was that just going to say you can't leave the human fish. I can't. I mean, there's like 20 people, <laughs> and you say I know it sounds silly to say I can't leave the human fish, but there is a gang of weird people here. <laughs> That I love. <laughs> it would and, be like if Buckwheat just left the sandlot. You're like, but, fuck this. I mean, but it is true. Tell me what you think. Because sometimes I go, I go back and forth. I think about moving a lot. But people are like, well, why don't you just move to L.A. and do the Chris Gethard show? And I'm like, because I don't think there's as many weird people there. And I think the stakes are higher in L.A. And I like to fail. And I always have. Mm. I like doing shit that might go really poorly. And I feel in L.A., you can't afford that. You don't know who's watching, you know? I don't know about that. Maybe it's changed. I just feel like if I go out to L.A., it's because I'm going to want to get shit done. And right now, I hate to fucking say the word, but I feel like I'm like a little bit artsy still. You know what I mean? Like I still want to experiment with stuff and and not necessarily worry about if it's going to help or hurt my career. You know? Yeah, I hear that. But I honestly think that right now, uh, L.A. is in a renaissance, certainly. Yeah. Uh, Not to use that word again, but like the idea that... I think uh, the people that are making those decisions kind of get it a little bit more. I think so, too. I think L.A. has become so much better for comedy. Yeah, yeah. I lived there in 2004 as well for six months, and there was no place to do shows. There was like – Right. There was Largo, which I was not at the level of at. So as a kid who was coming up at the age of 24, like there were no shows for me to do. And that was my initial experience. So I came back. And I don't know, man. My mom lives out here, and I have many paranoid fears about – my mom's a little sick. So I don't want to be far away. You know what I mean? There's real world shit like that too. But I don't know. There's also just a part of me that is stubborn. And I feel like the stuff I do is very New York-y. Like we have bands on my show that are these weirdo Brooklyn bands. We have people like – we have cast members who have joined the show because they've called the show. And I've said, why don't you just jump in a cab and come be on the show? Like that you can't do in L.A. You know, there are New York aspects of my show. And it does make me feel good that a lot of kids – there's kids who watch my show who are in like – you know, the middle of the country who will email and say like this to me, I want to move to New York and your show feels like what it would be like to hang out with a bunch of fucking comedians and musicians in New York. And I like that. I like, I don't know. But also there's a chip on my shoulder, man. Like it does make me feel all these people who give up New York for dead. I'm like, something's going to come out of New York again and the pendulum will swing back. Right. Yeah. I mean, when you say that, I'm like, it has to, it has to. And I would love to be that guy, you know, (laughs) I would love that. And that's another thing just practically like, and this is weird to say, but like, when I when everybody was still in New York, I was behind. I was well regarded, but I was behind all the UCB guys and you and Kroll and Mulaney and Mandy and, and, and Z, like everybody, everybody. Mm-hmm. And now everybody's gone, and I think I get to be regarded as one of the yeah one of the go-tos. one of the veterans, one of the yeah. go tos and veterans. And as long as I challenge myself to keep doing new interesting stuff and not become a crusty old veteran, right? Then that veteran status does conceivably help me but i'm right now in that stretch of trying to gauge when that window closes it's funny because uh okay so it does break my heart a little bit to think of you even going to la and just and getting a staff writing job like which i think you could easily i think i I could i think you could too and then like or or doing like uh parts from here of course you could do that character actor i feel like ultimately if i went to la i'd become a character actor or maybe you'd get put on a show like and you'd be like a regular thing but any of those situations and they they would probably be high paying and all that sort of stuff would uh close this like it's like uh from the please be kind rewind uh video store would close (laughs) that's you i kind of you're the be kind rewind video store fucking asshole Ah, no that's a magical video store you just called me 
like a blockbuster video. You no, called me I a dying, <laughs> a dying institution. I, I was thinking you of it more as a uh, magical place where they make their own videos. Yeah, no, I, I do. I feel good about the shit <laughs> I, I do. Didn't call you. A I blockbuster feel like I cool, do cool shit. Yes, you do. And dude, if we're gonna talk about, if we're getting into queer stuff. I don't know. I, I don't know how much. I don't think I've ever told you this. Yeah. I, well, we I got am four so dates. Something impossible. I can't take notes. The four the dates. Yes, I went on four dates. It was pretty. No, good. no, no. Go with where you're going. Good. I got four dates written down. Yeah, we can talk more about that if you want. But no, I'm going. so happy. You're a friend of mine, and we've had yeah. so many good conversations. And I feel like you're a comedy friend, but a, a notch above a comedy friend. Like I appreciate you that. And I meet when we, you and I meet, and we have time. We sit down and we hash it out, and it's great. Yeah. But did I ever tell you that years ago when I first started doing the Chris Gethard show? I've I've never talked about this publicly. I've never <laughs> talked about this publicly. Konico flew me out for a meeting. No. And yes, I've never told you this. No. Oh, yeah, I feel you getting awkward. Uh, no, I'm glad the lights are off because <laughs> I'm crying I'm right take, now. <laughs> the lights are back on so you can see my face. This is no joke. You get the lights on. I've never. Oh god, it, it's now it's so bright. But I've never. I've honestly never spoken about this publicly. But this feels like the appropriate place. Yeah. About three years ago, four years ago, like. When I was doing the Gethard show at UCB before Diddy, before like that. Oh, your press, Diddy thing, yeah. I put together a highlight reel of what we were doing with my talk show at UCB, and Jeff Ross wanted to meet me. And I went out there, and he was like, If you could convert this show to television, what would you want it to be? And I was like, I have this idea and this idea, and I want it to like be a throwback to this type of thing. And I feel like if you merge the internet with this old type of TV that's dying out, then we could do this and blah, blah, blah. And he was like looking at me, and there were a few other producers. And they were all kind of looking at me, and I could tell they were, like, into what I was saying. And then Jeff Ross was like, you're describing a really amazing television show, but I can't imagine who's going to buy it. So my advice to you is keep doing what you're doing and, like, make a lot of noise and force the issue until someone has to, until it's undeniable. Wow. So then I kind of always had that in the back of my head. That was, like, my fucking, like, secret motivator. You know what I mean? That was like my thing that like like you know, I'm reading fucking Game of Thrones right now and Ario has that coin that guy gave her and she can always look at that coin and be like, no, I know I have this fucking thing. And then I always had it in my head like if I work hard enough and keep making – and I was getting pressed. My show has been written up in the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times twice. The fucking New York Magazine did a profile on me that called me the Carson of Cable Access and each one of those. I was like, I'm doing what Jeff Ross said. I'm making noise and I know they have their eye on me. Oh, my God. And then God. Pete Holm, they went with Pete Holmes. Oh, no. They went with this good friend of mine, ah. a guy who I do consider a friend. Yes. And I did have that moment of like, fuck. That oh my was my God. thing. That was my, that was my secret motivator. Because I even, when I was a guest on Conan, when my book came out, they yeah. showed a clip of my show. Most of the interview was about my show. And we showed a clip and Conan was like, oh, we're going to rip that off. He was very nice. And then the, the host banter... When they went to commercial, he leaned over and he was like, you're doing cool shit. Don't quit. You're doing really cool shit. Don't quit. Fight for it. So oh. that's part of why I stay in New York is because those two people specifically who I respect to an endless degree were like, fight for your shit. It's cool. Yes. And then they hired you. But <laughs> <laughs> that's very awkward, right? You can imagine my feelings. So much joy. I love you so, so much. So much love and joy for you. But no, no, no. I don't feel any, any heat of anger from you, but I, it, is, it is strange. And it's a sobering reality because especially with talk shows, there's only so many of those that are ever going to go around. Right. And Konico is one of the only companies huh. that has the power to just make one of those happen. Yes. And at one point, I was on their radar, and then I stayed in New York and slipped off their radar, and you 
got on their radar to a much greater degree. I hope this isn't too awkward. No, 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 no it's not too awkward. You know, when you dissect uh, a success or whatever, yeah. like people would love to just be like, well, I'm, I'm the right guy and I'm the magic boy and all that sort of stuff. I was not the right guy. And I knew that. No, no, no. Um, but what you're challenging me to consider is I was in L.A. You know what I mean? Like, you want to talk about getting in a cab and being on the show. I got in a cab and went to the meeting. You know what I mean? Like, when I met with Jeff Ross, I'm just trying to... And I don't think you got it because you're in L.A. No, I don't I think I would have gotten it if I was in L.A. I want to be clear. I'm not saying that. Right, right, right. I Although won- that was what I was just considering. I was like, I wonder if that did help. I wonder if I was in L.A. and could have, didn't have to fly to see them if I could have checked in more and worked it. And stolen that sweet gift. <laughs> I wonder about that. I wonder if I was in LA. But but that's what I mean. That is what I mean. Stolen that sweet <laughs> But I do think I don't think Ooh. I could be doing the shit I've done that got them to respect me enough to say those things if I was in LA. I don't think I could have built it there. It's a kooky New York thing. I can believe that. The shit I do that. is New York shit. It's so perfect for the city. I agree with that. Oh, wow. I, yeah, I'm, I'm a little bit speechless. I don't know the correct way to respond. It's weird, right? I've been thinking about this since they announced your show. Yeah. In a way, but luckily, I have gotten to a point where I've had enough successes and enough failures and some high-profile failures that the ego has taken out of that for me. And mm. I'm not worried. I'm not, like, sitting there jealous of you or worried about you or feeling any ill feelings towards you. It's just one of those sobering realities of like, oh, that's a ship that has passed me by. Yes. Okay. Which, uh, great, you know? In all honesty, I've considered uh, many times the reality where they give it to somebody else. And this has been something that I've wanted my my whole life. I know. It's my reality. (laughs) But just recreationally, now I'm definitely going to be thinking about you as I'm falling asleep, you know what I mean? Yeah. I, I think of, and put this face to the scenario because I've I've been thinking about like what would it, what would it how would I have responded if I had had a couple meetings and I thought they went really well and I had been on the show a couple times and thought it went really well and then they gave it to you I would definitely be like fuck <laughs> you know what I mean and I'm sure there's a party that would be happy for me as a oh, friend no, of course of course of course of course yeah we, and I would be excited to see that show as for I am serious. excited to see yours but it it does fill me with fear. Yeah, every, God. especially with those, like that would. I mean, like I was obsessed. The fucking guys I was obsessed with were David Letterman, Howard Stern. Like those yeah. were two of my big. Andy Kaufman was my third. Yeah, David Letterman is it. I want to be David Letterman. You know, right? And I've been doing. I did that. I've done my talk show for two years at UCB, and now two years at Public Access, and have gotten insane, insane press for it. Yes, yes, yes. And I feel like everybody knows about it. Right. And I kind of feel like I've done this whole thing in a punk rock way, and then I have to stop sometimes and say, like, well, the Ramones never had a hit record. You know what I mean? Yeah. Everybody loves the Ramones. <laughs> yeah. But they lived off their T-shirt sales. Their right. albums never sold, you know? Wow. So that might be my reality is to have, like, a cool punk rock legacy and then eventually I have to move on and maybe get a staff writing job or teach improv classes or be a character Well, actor. now when you put it that way, I'm like, you can't. <laughs> right? You can't. And I, I feel like that also probably explains why I'm here in New York still yeah. fighting for it. And you've turned me from about 20 minutes ago. I was like, you should be in New York. You're be, I mean, L.A., you're being stupid. But, I mean, doing that show is important. And what Conan and Jeff Ross said to you, even though they didn't it's, give you this slot, no. is still completely true. And I want to be clear. I'm not bitter trying to complain. No, I don't think or, you sound or, bitter. Yeah, I, I, don't ju- think. I just feel like sometimes I come off as complainy. But I'm not complaining. I, it's just the reality of things. But... 
I don't know. I believe in what I'm doing and I believe in the people I'm doing it with, you know? Yeah. And I met my fiance on the show. You know what I mean? Like it's, it's your life. And there are kids who have legitimately emailed me and said that they haven't killed themselves because of stuff we've said on the show. So yeah. it's like I can't worry about – if I went to L.A., it wouldn't be the show that has affected people in that way. And that has to – maybe this is coming back to me rationalizing the reality of things the like left. you were saying before. Yeah my left brain right brain but i'm like okay like there are people who have told me this has meant a great deal to them and kept them going and i get those emails i get like it's down to like three or four emails a month where people tell me that they like have gotten into therapy because i talk about being in therapy or where like they read something i wrote about suicide and decided not to kill themselves and that is like a powerful thing and i'm like well then that's worth it right of course that's worth staying in new york to Maybe the detriment of my professional. It's beautiful. You're goddamn poetry, man. You are. You're like the. What's so interesting is I I don't like that in the movie version of this, I'm the guy in the Letterman jacket (laughs) that pushes you into the lockers and goes. You're the guy in the Leno jacket in the movie version. The movie version, everything goes further to the extreme. You're hiding in a closet listening to Jeff Ross tell me that. Yes. And I knock over a paint can and get busted yeah. after you've left. And yep. he's like, you want a show? And he's like, you've got the motivation, kid. You're one that of the guy's most... saving lives, but you got the moxie. Ah, you're one of the most sympathetic characters ever. I've always been rooting for you. And in this story, I, I'm getting a little emotional just thinking about it. But, like, I am so rooting for you. I and feel I want like you to I've keep... thrown you for a loop by telling you that I met with Konico. No, no, no. I feel okay about it. You do? Yeah, yeah, That's yeah. That's good. I feel like that hit you in a way that was, like, it's always a little bit weird when you talk about business that you're kind of like, oh, it, it introduces this uh, heightened Heisenberg principle, meaning I know we're being watched right now. Right, so when right. I'm talking, if you had told me that over lunch, yeah. I think my response would might have been different. But yeah. it's like we were talking about Glazer and E-Trade before. Yeah. One of the reasons why that episode was so tense for me was because you're talking about something that, that is uh, linked to your livelihood. Yeah. You know what I mean? Not to yes. be so shallow or obvious. But I say, hey, we were both going to be the E-Trade baby. And he goes, why would you say that? Yeah. Why would you talk about that? And I turned around and I did the same thing to you that you did to him. No, 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 no. A little bit. You did it to me. Yeah. Oh, no, I don't feel that way. But the reason why I can't, if you're feeling me uh, being a little bit more calculated or something, it's because I'm aware, as I was then, that yeah. E-Trade could hear about this right. and fire me. Right. Or, 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 or the luxury Conico. I have of being on public access is that yeah. they can't. They, I filled out the paperwork, baby. <laughs> they can't send me anywhere. Once you have a show on New York Public Access, you have to leave. It's like the groundlings. You have to opt out. Really? They can't, unless I break the rules, they can't kick me out. And the rules are, the rules are, you can't be naked in the studio. You can't bring animals in the studio, and you can't play sports in the studio. They're all about breaking it. My show could be an hour of me shouting the word "cunt." Really? Perfectly fine. <laughs> Perfectly fine. You are fun and magic. I love it. I love I, public access. And I, you know, okay. And you might also be picking up some of this emotion because I, I do have this love for you and always have. Thank you. And here's here's a little bit. And I'm not changing the subject, but this is where it came up for me was when you were teaching me improv. That is when I was going through my divorce, and I think I might have told you that I had like. This is vulnerable and a little weird, but Go like it was it. this inappropriate level of uh, love for you as my teacher. Uh, not romantic or anything, but it was like this was my one place. So that class was really – this is almost like one of your emails. I was in the worst time of my life, and the only thing that I had was that class. And I would go and had like 
weird sort of like this is Chris he's going to help me through this like delusions well I get I mean I do th- I don't know I, I've this is not to devalue your experience but I feel like I have had that relationship with I've been like a maybe co- that's the kind of guy a you kind are. of brief mentor to people right. on their way through New York sometimes yeah and um, connect with people and I think it's because I'm open and I was always glad you were one of those guys and um, you mean in the class I feel I feel like I can think of like a handful of people where I'm like I really connected with that person on a human level because of our work together in comedy and that's such a meaningful and rare thing we have so many hollow conversations so many disconcertingly empty empty calorie conversations between comedians where you're pretending to have human interactions because you have so few right that I've been lucky enough to have relationships where I have many and those feel so good and you're one of those so that makes me feel really good to hear yeah but I also feel like I do – I don't know. I feel like I, be, I genuinely believe in comedy and always have. And I feel very melodramatic saying this. But like I feel like it's something that matters, you know? And I think I made that clear in those classes I yeah. used to teach. And I think I really cared about like let's do this the right way and let's right. think about why we want to do this in the first place. Well, that's what made it religious for me. So I was really – it was like any port in a storm sort of thing. I was really lost. And I actually think I told you this. I, you could tell that I was going through something hard maybe – because my scenes, my initiation started being stuff like I'm alone in the woods, you know, yeah. stuff like that. And I'd yeah. have my characters doing these little monologues and little runs. I was always a good talker, good talk improv, not necessarily yeah. like the movie guy. Man but, after my heart. Uh, yeah, see, I like yeah. it. It's New York improv. Like, it's a small stage. Stand there and say some say shit. Say some smart, yeah, witty say, things. Say, say, say smart, witty things. But then I would do these monologues in character where I almost started crying. Yeah. And I realized that I would... And this is one of the beautiful things about improv. And also, I'm going to include improvising as a stand-up. Which I think, yes. Which is important. That's yeah. why I do it so much. All that stuff that I was talking to you about, the polyamorous date and all that sort of stuff, was improvising on stage. You know what I mean? You can get... I, I want to take the sacred thing of improv and spread it from improv theater and stand-up. It's all... Yeah. It can all be in there. that is happening... Maybe that's what's the, happening. There are people taking that, that taking that torch and running with it. I, I certainly hope so. Yeah. And there are a lot of people like Louie and Bill Burr and all those guys right from the stage. Yeah. They're all uh, retelling and never in the same order or in the exact same way bits and thoughts that they had while yeah. they were improvising. And you can tell. Improv itself in New York feels like it's a little shriveled compared to what it used to be. I agree with that. Yeah. And, and, and maybe that's going to be part of the pendulum sort of yeah. thing coming back. But uh, to finish that point, so I had you being... My pastor, basically. Like a guru. You were a guru. A guru-like figure at and UCB. Like, all I was doing at that time was auditioning and occasionally doing shows. But Wednesday at, like, 4 o'clock, I yeah, think the class Yeah, it was a daytime was. class. It was a daytime class because shows at night. And, like, who who's available at that time? It was, like, this ragtag group Dude, of people. let's not even get started. <laughs> it was a ragtag well, group. I also remember, it makes sense hearing you say this because I know you indicated that. And towards the end of the class, I think you were telling me a little bit more about well, your personal life. Well, I got life. your email address. And I don't know how I got it. Maybe you emailed the whole group, and I think I wrote you an email. And again, like, when I say inappropriate, I just mean exaggerated. Like, you are that guru guy. And I don't find anything inappropriate, generally. Yeah. And that's what makes something inappropriate, right? I I suppose so, yeah, would be your interpretation. But looking back... Kind of like you saying the four date things, you were in a manic place. I was in the worst depression. I was of just going to say because I remember the only notes I gave you were like, "You got to slow down." But it makes sense because when you would start having fun on yeah. stage, 
you'd just be like, more fun, more fun, more fun, more fun, more fun. <laughs> and now that I know you were a person whose life was full of nothing but misery at the time, yeah, yeah, yeah. it explains why you had to, could not let go of, yeah. you couldn't slow down or let, like, time, scenes would get wrecked because you'd just like, yes. it'd be like you'd be pouring so much fuel on it that the actual <laughs> liquid of the fuel would put the fire out. You know what I mean? What a great analogy. That's why. I, that's that's right. That's, that's, why that's why you do what you do. <laughs> but... But anyway, what I did. That's why I oh, did what I did. Yeah, that's right. That's right. But I'm you're a real still comedian. Pete, I, I swear know. to God, I'm a comedian. I can't believe the glimpses I'm getting on how uh, illegitimate, like some part of you must feel, because I never classify. I have. But dude, think about it. I am regarded cruel, as. A, I don't think so. I am regarded as that UCB kid. No matter how much stand up I ever I do, I, I think that'll be the, the rod that measures you. But I don't think of you that way. You don't. But I, I think of you as the real motherfucking deal. That, see, I don't feel that. I and I feel that now. But you're not. It's it's it doesn't. Know. It's not compromised. It's not going to change the way I think about you. But it's interesting to me to see that. So I got your email, and I think I told you were one of the. It was so weird. So so I'm not going to make this about me because I have a tendency to do that. But no, please. Do. I got my wife tells me she's leaving me for this other guy, and the first person I told was Nick Kroll, who I wasn't even that close to. Wow. Uh, I mean, we were pretty close, but all those relationships blossomed after my divorce. Um, and I, I, again, I want to be careful that I don't sound too much like a, a walking commercial for a divorce. Like things get better, get divorced, but yeah. they did for me. Mulaney's, Krolls, you, everybody got closer because suddenly I needed. I realized I didn't have any community. I realized it was me and and my wife who was more of who I made her than who she really was. She was more <laughs> this idea, this pot that I put these ideas and these these ideologies. So not even a real person. And at that point, you're also up in like Sleepy Hollow or something. And then I was right? even you're physically separate from right. the community and taking that fucking hour and a half train to go to that class that and all that sort of stuff. Be- that physically beautiful and apparently emotionally Ooh. miserable train ride. I wrote a journal entry on that train ride where I was like, I live in Sleepy Hollow. Uh, it's an hour and a half from New York City and seconds to the color beige. <laughs> like I, just, I just thought that it was like Ugh. such a tan and Byron. I was so depressed. <laughs> I also started drinking coffee at that point. I never drink coffee because, you know, just I, I don't need it. I run on anxiety. So, like, I, drank, I was drinking coffee. And at the time, my ex's father drank a lot of coffee. And he was a big thing that comes up on the show, a sad dad to me. Just mm-hmm. like a misplaced unappreciated dad that is just puttering around feeling nothing quiet yeah. desperation and I've seen a lot of these sad dads and they always terrify me yeah. and I, I, I'm not putting them down in fact if I had a charity it would be for sad dads <laughs> seriously that we, 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 we could get some sort of like commune or some sort of thing where they could play football I don't know what the fuck they need to do but they need help so he would always drink coffee, and I wrote in that same journal, I was like, I now know why your dad, I, I'm probably writing it to her, or why uh, Becca's dad uh, drank coffee. It wasn't because he was tired. <laughs> you know what I mean? I yeah. wasn't tired. I needed help, yeah. like feeling something. Yeah. So anyway, I told Nick Kroll first, and then I, I don't know if I finished that story. And then I got your email, and I think you were one of the first people I confided in, because in my mind, I was like, literally thinking like, it's okay. I have Chris. I think you're right. That Did it, I write you back something nice? You wrote back phenomenally. I, vaguely, I do remem- vaguely remember this. I kind of yeah. want to look it up. I do too. Should I look it up? I wonder if my phone will still access it. <laughs> I wonder. I mean, this was years. This must have been six or seven years ago. Oh my, I turned my phone off out of respect for your interview. You what left is, yours what on. is your... Here, type your email into... Yeah, it's into, my weird AOL. I still have AOL. Oh, my God. That's so perfect. At this point, I have it mostly because I think it's really funny. 
Yes. To have it. See, I would, I would, I would think Let's that. Let's search you. it out. You'd have to go, of course, as far back. Although, you know, we haven't emailed that much in our lives. No, we haven't. Should I be the one looking through this? Yeah, you can look through this. What if you've emailed things? No, there's, there's Curtis Gwynn. That's probably, I don't know why that keeps coming up. Maybe. Wait, that's you. Yeah, that's me. I can't believe I sent this to you. I laughed really hard at this. Whoa. What is that? Oh, that's the essay I sent you about the colonic. Because you remember? <gasps> oh, yeah. I told you about how I got a colonic and you loved that. And you wanted to get one, and I had recently written an essay about the experience. We have to talk about Ooh. your colonic. It was great. Look Pete. at this one. Colo- the the uh, subject Colonics. of that one is colonic. In all caps, it, it, it was scary. I literally thought, I, was, I guarantee the next word is dying. Ah, that's right. And I had one, and it was fine. Wow, look at this. We're looking through emails from Sorry from Gether. That's when you said, sorry, I uh, scolded you in class. Oh. Let's read that one. I did. One. I yelled at you. Yeah. I think deservedly, but I'm glad to see I'm the type of oh, guy. Oh, look at that. Sorry from Gethard. Sorry I snapped at you last night, Geth. That's it. Look at that. To That's the point, man. fucking class act. To the point. Me. Sorry I was yapping. I appreciate the email. Class is great. Thanks for giving so much Can to I explain it. this? Yeah. You and you were in a bad place. It turns out later in time, but as and you were also you also were. I mean, you are you are a professional comedian who is is about to get his own. You're about to become a talk show host, you right? By the standards, nobody of, else, no one else. I have not seen anyone since the last day of that class. But, but, oh, I meant no one else is getting a talk show. No, I was, oh, I was being me. That as well. Many many people. Chris Hardwick's getting a talk show. Mm. Who else? Is Actually, that is true. Nikki and Sarah just got a talk show. Oh, yeah. See, there's still hope. I, I'm not even saying that but to be every kind. network. Just like ticking, cross, cross it off the list. Yeah, but you know what? You know what? Oh, oh, I did it again. It's you know dark what? My again. answer to to your <laughs> conundrum is is that with the merging of the two highways of television and the internet, mm-hmm. where I honestly believe this, we're entering a new time where time slots and and uh, networks and all the, everything that we know is not going to be gonna true be anymore. And I, and it's going to be this post apocalyptic future where YouTube and Hulu and, and Netflix and all this stuff. Just exists, and we all earn less, but more people can make a living. There's, all, yeah, I, I, I wasn't going to go there, and that is kind of scary to me uh, because we all like that idea of the uh, major league paycheck or whatever. Mm-hmm. But I think you uh, mutating in your jar, and I mean that in the good way. Yeah, will one day make perfect sense. I think so. Yeah, and thank you for saying that. I honestly, I'm I not saying like that to make you feel better. The worst thing that happens if my, if my show never goes anywhere is that pe- kids in the future will say like that thing was cool you right. know what i mean right. like there, i bet there are people watching it who will see it as like because we do cool shit with the internet i'm proud of that but yes i want to explain yeah, so you, yeah, were, yeah. you you were like this powerhouse you were the funniest guy in the class <laughs> you were the most confident guy in the class there were some fucking i mean i'm not teaching anymore so i can just say it. there are some fucking cuckoo birds in that class man there was some fucking lunkheads there were some people who made no sense as human beings many really nice great people as well but a couple just really and I, I have always loved these people and love teaching them you should have them on your show I love weirdos yeah, I love yeah, them yeah, and there were some weirdos there but they yeah. are hard to handle and figure out and you I think were rightfully at times a little bored like the, you could move at a supersonic pace by anyone's standards I'm so and happy a, to hear that because my whole education system no one ever hypothesized that I was acting out in like junior high because I was bored, but that was true. That yeah. was the one subject that I was like, I got this. You're just like really, yeah. you were just you got it. And some of these people, I really needed to hold their hands, and you were bored. And there was one day where a scene was going on, and you had clearly given into the boredom, and you started talking to someone else. And you were the best one in the class, and I just had it in my head. 
I can't let the best guy in the class talk through everybody else's scenes because I still remember what you everybody said. has to be humble. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like the the best guy in the class has to be held to the strictest standards right, for right, me to right, be able right. to say have credibility as a teacher. So I believe what I did is <laughs> you looked wh- right at me while the scene was happening without even pausing the scene. I think I just yeah. turned around and I was like Pete, and we looked at each other, and I was like. I think I used the F word. Did I use the F word or no? no? I think I just went, I hope next time you do a scene, these guys talk through your scene. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then I just turned around and it continued. And, and it was boy. like a cloud, a storm cloud just rolled into the classroom. Yeah. Oh, my God. That, I was so impressed in that moment, though. Thank you. I, still, I don't think you said Pete. I think you looked at me and you said, I hope next scene you do, everyone's talking through it or something like that. That's awesome. And I was just like, my dick went inside my body. <laughs> To, to quote Eric Andre from the Glazer episode, yeah, it was it was terrifying. But that was that was some real shit, man, and that was really important. But I think for a guy of your abilities and skills, that was probably a better lesson than I was not going to teach you anything about comedy. I have way more to learn from you about comedy. Well, we didn't really go into the stand-up at transition. All. You know, I, I want to say this. I've been having this weird impulse, uh, not really weird, to take improv classes again. Really, and I'm kind of like missing it. You know why? I, I, I'll tell you why. Because I was reading this book called uh, The Memory Book. I have a bad memory. Um, so I started reading this book. It's an old book written by Harry Lorraine and this other guy. I forget his name. <laughs> How ironic. But anyway, uh, I, the reason I remember Harry Lorraine is he's a magician. And I used to read his books as a kid. Oh, and he cool. was, So I knew his card tricks and stuff. So then I was reading this book about... And he was also a memory. He'd do stunts on uh, talk shows like uh, Jimmy... Uh, whatever. The old uh, talk... Tonight shows and all that stuff, where he'd memorize everyone in the audience. I'm name. glad that as a future talk show host, you're such a student of the I game. Know. I know. Well, as I as I was saying it, I was like, I better not say it because what if it's wrong? It probably it was probably right, but I was like, uh, it's Jack Parr, I believe you're yeah, referring to. Yeah, and I said John. You said Jimmy Parr. Jimmy Parr. Well, I, if his friends call him Jimmy, <laughs> or you could have been saying Jimmy Pardo. <laughs> You could have been saying that. Ah, that's what it is. I think you found why I'm inspired. But anyway, <laughs> and we're talking about my bad memory. So anyway, the point of this whole memory book, I can summarize it. And they can summarize I'm not like taking money out of their pockets. Is that you need to apply your imagination for things. So if you want to remember where you left your keys and they're in your front pocket, you need to picture your front pocket eating your keys. Like it needs to be a, a shark mm-hmm. mouth devouring your keys. And you will remember... Uh, and, and then I was like remembering how important imagination is and just reading this book and it's encouraging you like when you read uh, someone says your name is Chris and that rhymes like litmus or something and I picture a test on your forehead or you know something better than that like but it, it, it's all about imagination and I was like God I miss improv. And it made me remember that that's something that you need to water and foster. And like, I think you not wanting to go to LA, there's something in my heart that something sometimes doesn't want to go to LA because of the pressure. It better be good. I was going to say, like, as far as you wanting to get back in improv, can it be as simple as you've got an immense amount of pressure on you right now to do something that literally doesn't matter? Yeah, it might could be, be the best feeling in the world for right. you. Yeah, I think so. But I think I want to regain that childlike sort of like we're just doing a scene about making a canoe out yeah. of this log, and who cares? Yeah, and that feeling of love of this guy's got me, and it'll be funny, and a good teacher like you telling us that it doesn't even necessarily need to be hilarious; it needs to be true and relax, and then and just be in it and it'll be okay I still I, I, one of my favorite moments in improv is when you're just doing the scene for real and then you stumble on why it's funny and people that the, first that, laugh. the best feeling is when you're just talking and then people are laughing and you're not certain why right that's the best feeling yeah absolutely. and I, I have 
it, it's amazing to me that I was able to teach that to so many people in an improv context, and it took me so long to learn that in a stand-up context. Yeah. I felt like stand-up was about being funny, hmm. so I couldn't relax. When right. my whole thing as a teacher was like, relax and right. just own it and do what you want to do, and I never learned that lesson for myself. That's interesting. You feel like yeah. you have now. I've gotten there. Making Although the transition. I've recently started moving from the alternative scene to clubs. Oh, wow. And that's... Such a different I feel like animal. we're sending you to public school now. I know, right? <laughs> it's a weird, but I, in my mind, I am re- so respectful of stand up that I feel like if I'm going to be a real stand up, I can't be one of these fucking guys who just hides in the backs of bars in Brooklyn. You yeah. know what I mean? Yeah, like, I'm sure, I do know what you mean. I better do clubs. I better do it for real. I better, yeah. I feel like I have to earn everybody's respect because I should. Right. You know what I mean? You also, I, you got to do both because then uh, if you're anything like me, you go uh, up at, uh, on Caroline's on uh, Wednesday or something and you need to be able to go, no, I know this is funny because I've done it enough times mm-hmm. in those bars in Brooklyn. I know there's something here to give you that confidence that when it doesn't destroy in the same way. I talk about this on the show all the time. I do the Laugh Factory and I do um, Meltdown. You know what I mean? And there are lines that I say at Meltdown that uh, I'll close with and I've said this many times on the show recently so forgive me. But I, I have uh, a joke about Mr. P and it's very silly I do it at Meltdown and it's the closer I do it at Laugh Factory it got zero you know what I mean so that yeah. you need to remain in both so you see what, and, but here's the thing when you do TV it's the ones that worked at Meltdown that make you yeah. better that, that, so get your chops at the clubs and I'm with you be legitimate have a way to deliver and just learn how to work every crowd like I can't just perform for New York crowds that love comedy. Right. I need to perform for like people from Finland who are here for 72 hours and got roped into this by one of those guys in Times Square. <laughs> like I should be able to perform for them too if I want to really be good. You yeah, know? I agree. And I want to be good. I want to be good. Yeah. I want to be the best I can be, you know? Like yeah. that's my goal. <laughs> so... I love it. We you, should, like, I, I thought you once taught me the greatest memory trick. Was it not you who told me this? How to remember people's names? No, what was that? Oh my God. I forget who told me it, which is fascinating. Someone once told me, and it works for me, that when you meet someone and they tell you their name, you immediately imagine someone else you know with that name beating the shit out of someone else. It's funny. So like when I met Andrew, I immediately thought of Andy Daly beating the shit out of Andy Secunda. That's crazy. Two friends of mine in the comedy world. And now I have this image of two people named Andrew beating each other up and I remember that your name is Andrew. That's one of those things. They touch on that in the book and that is something that I do sometimes. Like I met a Lauren with girls. I'll often picture them making out. Mm -hmm. It because Mm -hmm. it's not just because I'm a horn dog. It's because you need to picture something graphic. Yeah. It needs to be kind of memorable. It needs to be memorable. (laughs) Yeah. And then also you need to remember to remember. That's their other big point. Yeah. People say they forgot when they really never remembered. That's the whole crux Mm -hmm. of the book. Let's talk about the four dates because we got to talk about love. You love that story. Well, That's we, your favorite story I've ever told you. <laughs> that beat the colonic. We also have to talk about the colonic. Tell the colonic first. Well, you, I forget how we even got I, to it. We wait, always, we, I, I had gotten a colonic first. No, I got a colonic first. I convinced you but, to get a colonic. Oh, okay. Or, That's or weird. Pushed you, or you had been thinking of one. And it somehow came up that I had just gotten one. I feel like everybody, unless you're eight years old, I haven't had like a, like a perfect shit since I was like a kid. Oh, no. So if you want to bring yeah. up shit improvement, I'm Oof, kind of like, yeah, what are you doing? I mean, and you were having problems. It's you, like you hadn't shit in a long time. Or oh, something. dude, I uh, do you want you really uh, the whole story? Okay. This is like a three-minute story, so just jump ahead if you don't want to hear a poop story. It's longer than that. I'll try to keep it quick. Let's see. Yeah, I historically have some bowel problems. Even before 
right before this interview, you texted me and said, are you almost here? And I said, I'm yeah, taking I'm shit in the, in the basement. basement of your hotel. <laughs> I'm shitting in the basement. I always shit. And I couldn't shit. I like got this – I had like a virus or something. I had like a fever and then that went away. But I couldn't shit for like days. So I started – you know, I was taking fiber and laxatives and shit, not, eating nothing but fucking lettuce. Nothing was working, you know? What? Yeah, nothing would work, dude. I would just sit and I'd shoot like one rock, like a real dark black rock. And, oh, like, my one, God. It was so unsatisfying. And I was like, I don't want to be one of these fucking assholes who has a heart attack on the toilet and dies on the toilet, you know? <sighs> so I got an enema. I went to – I was like looking for more fiber pills or stool softeners, all this shit. And I saw the enema sitting in the fucking Dwayne Reed. And I was like, I'm going to go for it. So my girlfriend at the time, who you later convinced me to break up with <laughs> <laughs> you mean your fiance? No, 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 no. That's a different person. Yeah. Oh, I thought you got back with her and now you're I've engaged. Got, to no, her. we got back together and broke up again. Oh. It really makes me sad and she doesn't speak to me anymore and it breaks my heart because I think she's one of the best people. Oh, God. She moved to LA well, to get away from the me. Topic. No. Yeah. We're, no. You might run into her out in LA, the sunny land of opportunities. Oh. And I hope she does great. I hope she does great. But it kills me. This whole time I've I been assuming that you were engaged to her. No, I don't think she'll ever speak to me again. Sucks. We got to talk about that. She's one of my best friends and a lovely person. Should we talk about and that the funniest person. Why did you break up the second time? Sadly, for the same reasons as the first time. Which, which we was... We couldn't improve upon. Them. Yeah. It was just, we were best friends. We were best friends. And I love her, but that's what we were. And yeah. in her mind, we weren't. And in my mind, we were. And it used, there were certain things... That reflected that. That just made me really sad. You know? And it, with distance, I realized... I used to, like, blame her and think of certain things where I was like, why is there this distance here? Or why is there this lack of communication here? Why are these things so strange? And at the end of the day, I think we were both just two strange people and couldn't communicate on certain levels. And it makes me really sad. Hmm. And I miss her. And I love her. I'll always have love for her. But we're best friends, you know? But I don't think she'll ever speak to me again. Because I fell, I didn't tell you this, we broke up after I fell off the wagon at Bonnaroo and consumed $300 worth of MDMA in 36 hours. <laughs> I never told you this. What? I didn't tell you this. I First you of all, that. you're on the wagon, you're a sober guy? I've been, yeah, I haven't had alcohol in like 11 or 12 years. Okay. And I hadn't done drugs in five years, and then two years ago at Bonnaroo, I ate $300 worth of MDMA, which M- is not how MDMA works. What is MDMA? It's the stuff that makes ecstasy good. It's oh, like the pure... Uh, it's yeah, Molly. Yeah, Molly. Yeah, Molly. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. And uh, I took it and I liked it, and but I forgot that I am an addict. And I thought I would be able to keep myself under control because I'd been totally sober, for everything, for five years. And then I took MDMA, which is like more, 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 more. Was and started, started drinking too? No, I didn't start drinking. Just consumed. Just $300. Tons, <laughs> tons. I mean a white bag of powder. I, do, I have a whole stand-up bit. I have this story that I tell all about this experience. But yeah, like eating Molly by myself in a porta potty at Bonnaroo. Like immediate fell back into addict behavior. Whoa. Fell off the wagon. And like, you know, that drug makes you very honest and is kind of a beautiful experience. But I went way overboard. And in the midst of that, a friend of mine who I was with asked me, do you think you're ever going to get together with that girl you're always hanging around with? And they were referring to my girlfriend of eight years. Oh, my God. Mind. We'd broken up once before, but I was just they like, this said, is so sad. Are you going to get together with that girl to you're point, always hanging around with? This person who worked on with. my show who I, with every week, this friend <gasps> of mine who I've been hanging out with every week, didn't even know that was my girlfriend or that I had a girlfriend because we just weren't affectionate. We just weren't affectionate. We were friends. We were visibly friends. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it broke my heart, and I just went into, you know, we do this and that, and here's all these experiences, and it really bothers me, and I want to marry my best friend. That's a beautiful idea, but... 
I don't think I have to. I don't think I have to marry this person just because she's my best friend and I want to. Right. I don't have to. I want to, but I kind of know that I shouldn't. And I kind of know it's best for both of us that I don't, you know? And just in this fucking drug-addled haze, put it all out on the table. But once to I her? had said it, no, to my friend. Oh, to your friend. But once I had said it all out loud, I was like, well, it's, it's out now. You can't unsay things. You know yeah. what I mean? These yeah. are all things that have bothered me that I've thought and I've been trying to fight through and struggle with, but I let it out. Mm. And once you let it out, drugs or no, now I have to deal with it. You know? Mm-hmm. Now I have to deal with it. So I broke up with her and I don't feel good that drugs were at the root of it. I don't feel good about that at all. But I don't know. I don't know. And then I had an insane summer, dude. <laughs> insane summer. Why? Broke up with her. My shrink, who I love, put me on Adderall right after that. Why? Because she thought I had like ADD that was leading to my depression. Hmm. So I had a breakup. And then I also just moved my, this guy I knew texted me. He's like, hey, you want to live with me in Greenpoint? And I was like, yeah. And just move. I had the same roommate for 10 years. My parents moved. <laughs> They've always lived half an hour away. They moved like six hours away. Just all these foundational girlfriend, roommate who's like a brother, parents gone, moved to this new neighborhood, went nuts, started, got Adderall, which. Speed. Speed was put on speed in the wake of a horrific breakup. <laughs> I did nothing that summer but take MDMA and speed. Also, I said to my shrink, she's like, I want to put you on Adderall. I was like, I don't know. What are the side effects? She goes, no side effects. Not true. I was fucking, I couldn't get a boner half the time. And then the other times I could fuck for like nine hours and couldn't come. I was shitting blood. I would shit blood. <laughs> That shit blood. God. It was horrible. And I get these muscle cramps. I was doing ASCAT one night and my arms started going like like I started getting like dinosaur arms and shit on the back line. I was like, what the fuck? The fuck is this? Involuntary T Rex. Yeah, because it would dehydrate me so bad that I'd start like quaking and my muscles would cramp. And oh. all these things were due to Adderall, I think, you know. You Google she told me no side effects. Pretty much anything that happened to me that summer. I would Google Adderall, comma, muscle cramps. Adderall, comma, fucking eternal erection. Adderall, And dude, when I say I couldn't get a boner, like I'm 33. There have been times where I can achieve a boner. I'm not going to lie about that. But I've never had it where I would be rock hard and then it would be like, gone. Like a fucking pin popping a balloon. It was like, what the fuck, man? Like what? Like I went from rock hard to just numb, you know? Adderall. It was fucked up, man. It did not agree with me. And I started having fucking panic attacks and I started sleeping with people. I fucking, the worst, (laughs) the weirdest that got was, you know, that hotel, the standard that's above the high line. Yeah. I rented a room up there and ate a girl's butt. That's a story you would love. What story? You already heard the four girls. I've, I've heard four girls. I never ate a butt before, but I ate that girl's butt. Wait, didn't you? Have you told this on stage or something? I do. I tell. I'm telling you. you to, I'm telling you the conversational st- version of no, it. But no, I have no, I wasn't it accusing into an you of story. doing a bit. I'm stealing I'm just my own saying, material. I think I've heard you. Did you get it on Craigslist or something? The what? The hotel? The butt? The butt? <laughs> I don't eat Craigslist butt. I'm not sitting around eating low-class, trashy Craigslist butt. What are you talking about? Have I ever ordered a girl on Craigslist? <laughs> you only get premium free-range butt. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or, I live in yeah. Greenpoint, man. You I get, get that organic butt. Organic butt. Tell me, tell me the butt. 
Tell me, butt. where did you get the butt? It was this very lovely girl who's uh, <laughs> attached to this butt. It was a very no. She's super cool, and we were hanging out, and it was um, a casual thing. And she's very nice. And was it a date? We had gone on dates. Like we, this is the first hardcore hookup we'd had. And at just some point, and she grabbed me by the hair and she put my mouth on her butt, and I just stuck my tongue out. <laughs> I was like, I really like this. And my line, you want to hear my big line on stage that I always get to laugh at that? Yeah. I always go like, and if I never, I'm a butt eater. I know I'm a butt eater now. And even if I never eat butt again, I know I'm a butt eater because I learned that day that eating butt is not a thing you do. It's a thing you are. That's my big line. But I do. I still eat, eat butt. butt. I eat butt on the regs. You eat your fiance's butt. Come on, man. <laughs> <laughs> Oh no, I love you. If you listen to this, I love you so much, and I'm so sorry you're marrying this. Come on, you're marrying man. this. Come on, man. All access, can't keep my mouth shut, slave for attention. <laughs> uh, why did I? I should have told the other story. You ate a butt. I eat, yeah. Yeah, you eat butt. Yeah, there's man. nothing wrong with eating butt. It's, I've eaten butt. It's don't, awesome. don't feel alone. It's fucking cool. There's, you're doing a disservice if you're not acknowledging the eroticism of the whole body. I love butts. Or just the butt. Let's just keep it on the butt. butt, man. Yeah. You're going to probably want to. Are you a stickler for a pre-shower before the buddy? Not necessarily. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> like, I had a fiance now. He's a cleanly person who I'm going to marry. Make my wife. Make but my it, wife. But it is a butt. <laughs> it is a butt. I trust that she has good hygiene. I, Do I, you I, have a bidet? <laughs> No, you didn't have I to don't. think about that. Don't you have don't a have a bidet. No, but I do keep wet wipes on the back of the toilet. <laughs> I do keep flushable baby that, wipes. That is how you know some butt eating is happening. <laughs> you come in my apartment. Yes. If anyone ever comes over now and they see the flushable baby wipes, they're gonna yeah. know I do it for butt eating. Wet wipes. The wet wipes. Let's be honest. It's for butt eating. It has to be. Yeah. It has Guess to. who else has uh, wet wipes on his toilet? Who? This guy. Yeah, dude. Yeah. Yeah, dude, butts are really fun. <laughs> but I do feel like there's a level. We are such a shamelessly sexual culture now. Yes. Going into butt, uh, butt eating is like a level of actual intimacy. Sure. Yeah. No, yeah, of course. Yeah. Yeah, nobody's just, I mean, you could just do it for its own sake, but usually yeah. it's because you're like, this is something I want to do. Yeah, <laughs> but I had an MDMA-driven summer where I broke up with a lovely person and then... Whose butt you didn't eat, I'm going to assume. Duh. <laughs> What I'm saying is, uh, I was making a joke, and you don't have to answer that, of course, but what I'm saying is, uh, it sounded like, do you marry your friend or your lover is a thing, right? Mm-hmm. And I was actually just reading on uh, Huffington Post, they were talking about how sex is like a huge indication of a successful marriage, because other people in your life, you can go to the museum with them, but yeah. your partner is going to be And I feel so lucky that I found both now. Someone you can go to the museum yeah, with I only and dated a, eat I only dated my fiance <laughs> for nine months. But we I just dated enough and I've I've had fling I've had crazy fucking manic depression fueled fucking crazy nights. Yes. And I've had very long relationships and I've kind of walked the whole spectrum. And uh I started dating this person and I was like, This is so different and in every way that it's different, it is pleasant. Hmm. And it is so How did you mean relaxed this, this and joyous. She was in a band that I loved forever, and then a lot of the musicians who were on my show at the Chris Gethard show, the house band, are kids from the same punk scene as her, so she'd come and see the show. She's a punk rocker? She's a punk rocker. Oh, wow. And she then, um, when we switched to public access, she became the leader, the singer of the house band on my show. 
and we just became close over time through that. And we were working in this context where we were close and I think admiring like I always admired her work and I think she's a super cool person and then I became single and I was dating around and she knew about all that and was just kind of aware of how I was living and then kind of realized that there might be some attraction there and flirtation there and it really motivated me to get my shit together and stop fucking kind of like you know because I think when you're in one of those life nosedives and behaving like a crazy person there is an addictive quality to that it's like super fun for a while and then it's really fucked up and foundationless and causes at least in my case i'll go out and run around the city and stay up for three nights straight doing crazy shit and then i'll spend a week being really depressed and scared because that's not who i am and i don't know why i give in to acting that way Hmm. and she was she was the one who kind of made me realize like i want to get my shit you want to hear the act you want to hear like the the simple honest the very simple grounded version of this philosophy yeah I bought a duvet cover after the first time she slept at my house. Why? I'd always had a bedspread and no cover on it. And a couple girls had made fun of me. But you know, you've known me well enough to know that my thing has always been kind of going like, I don't have a great life. Right. I, I love that video of your old apartment. Yeah. Yeah. Like I would make videos of the shitty apartment I lived in. Right. And that was part of the appeal to me was like, right. I'll let you all know that I don't have it together. Right. And that was like my shtick. That was what I was building my whole Kind of like Har- Harvey Picar a little bit. A little bit. Yeah. yeah a little bit like, of like, I'm this, this kid from Jersey and I can't figure out the city and right. I live in this apartment that's not great and I don't know how to – I want to fix it and I don't know how to get it together. And then I started dating her and the day after she slept over the first time I went out and was like – I went and bought a fucking duvet cover and some throw pillows See, you are and a, frames for my posters. And you I was like, are I want to get Apatow my shit movie. together. You're a Jet Apatow movie. Well, someone's going to hear this now and write that script. <laughs> And they're going to have their own TBS talk show. Uh, oh, I thought you meant for you. I was like, why aren't no, you not writing for it? me. Yeah, I know. Yeah. I'm. Tra- of course, I'm trying. Of yeah. course, I try. But I mean, I, what what Judd uh, is honestly quite good at is those moments where you're like, I'm going to get a duvet cover instead of being like, yeah. I'm going to get my. You just see the guy buying. I went a duvet and framed cover. my posters, you yeah. know, because I was like, I want to be a fucking grown up for this cool, beautiful. I know woman. exactly what you're talking about. When when I am going on a date with somebody that, uh, that I really care about and stuff, it's not just about fucking you clean up your apartment yeah. you know what i mean and there's something normalizing and wonderful about that and when my apartment is a mess it's because i'm probably not doing too well mentally mm-hmm. because i'm not even open to the idea that maybe somebody's going to come over yeah. romantically or otherwise or it's self-sabotage that you yes you want to bring them home so they can see how fucked up your life is and how you're not worth their oh, time oh i was going to say that i if i know my place is completely trashed i won't uh, even if I you met the girl happiness. of my dreams, I'd be like, I gotta go clean up. No, like, see, I will self sabotage to the point where I'll. Dude, I slept in a fucking dog bed for years. Have <laughs> <laughs> I not told you this? I fucking freaked out. I had bed what? bugs. I had bed bugs, which in New York, I think everybody knows. Now that's like a joke. Yeah. The, but I had them in like bugs. 2005, 2006. Before it was cool? Before anybody knew about it, when it was like, oh, you're dirty, you're scum, you're you big, you're big pen. Yeah. Like, what do you live in the fucking Great Depression? You know what I mean? Like, so I was one of the first people to have them, so I was real freaked out. So I moved and went to IKEA and bought a metal loft bed because they can't climb metal. Uh-huh. And then I built it, and I was like, I'm like 27, 28 years old. I can't be sleeping in a fucking loft bed. <laughs> So I took it apart, but you can't return it once you've put it together. So I'd spend a couple hundred bucks on this fucking thing. So for years, I slept in the top of a loft bed on the floor 
So I slept basically in this mattress that was surrounded by safety cage bars. <laughs> and my friend Don Finelli came over one day and was like, do you sleep in a fucking dog bed? What the fuck is this contraption? But for years, that was my game with girls. What? Girls would flirt with me, and I'd realize it. And one of my big lines, I'd be like, you don't want to flirt with me. And they'd be like, why? And I'd be like, because I can't bring you home. I sleep in a dog bed. And I'd just put that out there, and then I'd have a normal human conversation. And if they were still interested, right. they'd go, I really, do you really sleep in a dog bed? I, I kind of have to see that. Oh, my God. That worked. That's so funny. That was like a conversation piece that I found out women could use as an entry to my home. Well, you're making it real. You're making it a place. And then they would come and they'd be like, oh, you actually do. Yeah. You sleep in a fucking cage with an unframed Empire Strikes Back poster <laughs> hanging by a thumbtack above it. You suck. <laughs> you suck. In a, they- in a room with no closet <laughs> and piles of clothes on the floor. Just, I suck. I sucked. <laughs> My life is a lot better now, man. I got two closets, bro. Yeah. Well, do you live with this girl? Whoa. No, we're moving in together in October. I didn't plan on proposing to her until after we moved in together, but I found a ring I really liked. Uh-huh. And once I had the ring, it, I proposed to her the day I picked it up because I was so freaked out about having it. Like that she'd find it or something? No, uh, I got it resized and that took a week. And I was so nervous and skittish that she was like, what the fuck is going on with you lately? Like, what's up? Uh-huh. She like, could sense something was wrong. And I was like, we're moving in together in October when her lease is up. And I was like, if I have to hang on to this thing for four months, she's going to dump me before then because I'm going to be so fucking freaked out. <laughs> so I went and picked it up and it got in my pocket. It never even made it home. We did a show. We, the, we did a show with the Chris Gethard show at a festival in Brooklyn that day and then hung out that night. And I was like, I need to get this thing out of my fucking possession, man. This is, this is terrifying. So I proposed to her that night. <laughs> How did you propose? Did you go, I have to get this out of my pocket? No, it was not. I was, we were driving over the Verrazano Bridge, her favorite bridge. Oh, shit. She loves bridges, and that's a beautiful bridge that she loves. Wait, in a cab? No, I have a car. So you were driving? Yeah, one hand, right hand on the, like a fucking pimp, dude. <laughs> like a pimp? Yeah. Pimps I don't propose. propose. <laughs> I, propose. <laughs> I propose just like a pimp. Or like if a pimp <laughs> would like, propose. Hand on yeah. the wheel, and then I was like. The yes. other arm went under that arm yeah. and handed right her the hand, brake. Right arm on the wheel, left arm under the right arm <laughs> while we were driving. There's no pedestrian walkway. No box? No, there was a box. Okay. But I flipped open the box with my left hand <laughs> went under the right arm. It was slick. It was cool. And then we got out. We, I had no plan Wait, after she that. She couldn't even kiss you or anything. You're on the bridge. No, but then we got out. I had no plan after proposing, so we just got lost in Staten Island and went to an Italian ice stand, and then I eventually got down on one knee and actually put it on her. Oh. It was nice. I feel really good about it. That's great. I'm glad that my life is coming together. It but is I'm also together. scared it's going to make me less funny. What? Being married? That my life is together. Oh, I see. I don't think so. Because I have so long treaded on the fact of, like, why the fuck can't I figure it out? But now I feel like I figured it out. It's funny. You Can you be superstitious about that? Like, anything? Like, I, I've said this on the show before, but I had a mole removed, and I was worried that I wouldn't be funny afterwards. I was like, what if, it, what if it's that mole? <laughs> that is. That's, a, that that's is, crazy. That is a comedian's paranoia yeah. to a, yeah, yeah. To a I was 20, treacherous degree. I was 22 or something. I was a, yeah. I was a kid. But well, I for me, it was also when I went on antidepressants. It was like, is, this, is, is me not being fucking insane going to make me not funny? And right. it was the opposite of true. Right. Well, that's the Mulaney thing we say on the show a lot is that pain gets in the way. It wasn't your sadness and your manicness getting in the way? Yeah, I mean, it was giving me material, certainly, but it also was allowing... Like, once I had my head on straight, I was able to, like, focus and sit for 15 minutes and write and not be all over the map and, you know what I mean? Like, Right. So 
the level of discipline and focus allowed me to actually think about my life and right. figure out what I wanted to say about it rather than just doing crazy shit and then recounting crazy shit and thinking that was enough. Right. You know? And, and you, therapy too. Yeah. And you're a fan of that. Love it. I get a lot of emails about people actually go to my therapist. Really? <laughs> Fans of the show go to my therapist. Oh, that's awesome. <laughs> Some of them do. Yeah. I love my therapist. She is a very, she's an, a lovable oddball. Really? I enjoy greatly. Yeah. 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 Well, that sounds perfect for you. She recently told me I should go see a, uh, a numerologist slash tarot card reader. Really? Yeah. So she's kind of odd in that yeah. way. I that's, love it. That's actually I like, did not go, <clears throat> nor will I. I you had know, to draw a line. Yeah. I can't do that as part of my actual psychotherapy. That's really interesting. I find when things are good, like they are for you right now, I'm more open to that stuff. Like when I'm in love, I'm like, mm-hmm. astrology is real. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Definitely. You took that turn years ago where you became way more of a hippie, right? Yes. Yeah. And I love it. Yeah. And I'm living in that place. I have loved... There was a stretch where every time we talked, I think after you moved to LA, we'd run into each other more rarely. And there were three or four times in a row where the entirety of our conversation was you convincing me I should do mushrooms. Uh, you attempting to get me to do mushrooms. That's For right. Yeah. Well, mushrooms you was a part ve- of it. You were very passionate that's why about you were the telling positive aspects of mushrooms. Yes. And that's why I like that you include... I've never done Molly and I don't really have any interest in synthetic things. Uh, and you I, think I should have done mushrooms. Instead no, 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 of Molly. No, no. I liked that Molly opened up your heart. Imagine if I did $300 worth of mushrooms in one sitting. That would not be good. I'd be that, dead. That's not the same. I, well, you can't overdose on mushrooms. But I mean, I, Chris Gethard would be dead. Yeah, yeah I would never have, come may back. have died. Yeah. I would be that guy in I your think hometown that's an, with the shaky coffee cup. Yeah, that could, <laughs> <laughs> it could be. The guy standing outside the liquor store. Mushrooms, you know, my therapist recently told me, it was like, you know, the universe is expanding. Yep. And uh, we just got the 90-minute light. <laughs> the universe oh, is expanding. Shit. Pressure's on. Yeah, I know. And now that's all the time we have. <laughs> oh, no. Oh, no. The universe is expanding, and he's been enjoying watching me question every single thing in my life. And you and told him that, that mushrooms were a part of that process. He's aware of that, yeah. I haven't done mushrooms in years. But what, what mushrooms did was it did give me a feeling of what's it like when I'm being completely honest with myself. MDMA, same thing for me. That's why I think there can be something... I think there is something very beautiful about that. But my therapy and the goal in my life is to have uh, things dealt with in real time. Feel them and address them immediately. And I, I like... I tend to have like a, a couple month turnaround. Like if you offend me, <laughs> like mm-hmm. in, in the old days, I would wait a while to make sure I was really upset before I would tell you about it or whatever. But, it, you know, so th- that kind of feels like a mushroomy thing. But, you know, talking about God and all that sort of stuff, I was laying in this bed and see the, the, the smoke detector with the two lights yeah. above it. So I went to bed. I, I had had a couple drinks and uh, went out with Joe DeRosa. And I was laying down and very dark in this room, as we've seen. And I remember, like, so I see these two lights. Yeah. <laughs> this is me being an idiot. I see these two lights. I don't know it's from the smoke detector. <laughs> and I'm like, holy shit. What the fuck? Like, cause I, okay, maybe I'm a little drunk. So I start seeing the lights in the perfect blackness of my eyes being closed. And yeah. then I'm, I'm like, is this some sort of sign? Is this mean you were something? Like a... I thought, that, that's, this is me admitting that sometimes I can maybe take it too far. Yeah. I'm an idiot. Because yeah. I started, like, asking it questions and stuff. <laughs> and then I realized, I mean, like, I got maybe one question. I don't even remember what the question was when I realized, wait. If I cover my face with a pillow, the lights go away. <laughs> so that means they're happening outside. <laughs> I'd like to think that that was alcohol. Yeah. Wait, why are you in town? I haven't even asked. We're doing um, 
the Batman videos we do. Oh, nice. Uh, we're doing a live version of that tonight at the doing a live, Gramercy. A live Just Batman a sketch. Film. Just like oh, nice. a four-minute, five-minute You came sketch. all the way from L.A. for a four-minute sketch. Well, it's for College Humor, and it's yeah. going to be online. Uh, yeah. So a lot of people will see it, and we're going to promote uh, the TV show. That's cool. Yeah. So it's like a promotion opportunity. Are you, so are you starting fun. the promotion grind? Not yet. Kind of. Are you braced for that? I don't know. People, yeah, I don't know how to answer that question. I, I like to did say Did I ever that tell I'm, you when I did the Comedy Central sitcom? Sorry to interrupt. Yeah, Big Lake? Yeah. Do you want to hear the most sobering experience I, I had I don't with know that? Jack Parr, but I know Big Lake. <laughs> <laughs> I like the derisive tone you use while referring to the TV show. I was the star I know, of, I know, I know. But deservedly so. No, no, I never saw it. <laughs> I'm just being honest. I, I, don't, I don't want you to think that I'm no, judging it's it. great. No, no, no. I, uh, nor did most of America. <laughs> That's why it happened. Um, But I was going to do one of these press junkets, which you you will have to do an even more intense versions of, I'm sure. I've done some junkets. Yeah. And I I was going to leave my house for for like this day. They sent like a fucking town car to Queens to pick me up. Mm -hmm. And I had to wear like fancy clothes and shit, you know? Mm -hmm. And I went to leave. And this is when I realized like I was starting to get a little cocky, you know? I was starting to get like girls were like just straight up like messaging me on facebook asking if i was single and shit Mm -hmm. because i had had the tv show hadn't even aired yet they were just like he has a tv show (laughs) i had money for the first time you know what i mean all this shit was changing and i was starting to go to my head and this was the moment that knocked me down i go to leave i'm in my fucking clothes the town car is waiting for me i'm feeling like a big shot and as i go to leave my doorknob breaks off in my hand and I cannot reattach it. It uh. won't go back in. And I realize I'm trapped in my own house. I am trapped inside. Oh my so God. I call my roommate and I'm like, does this ever happen to you? He's like, no. And the driver from this fucking limo company is calling me. He's like, dude, we have places to be. So I had to <laughs> climb out my window. In your nice clothes. In Woodside. In Woodside, Queens, in my fancy clothes. Not even fucking Astoria. <laughs> had to climb onto my fire escape. <laughs> And lower myself down and then drop into the fucking garbage area behind my house <laughs> in my fancy clothes and then like trudge around the side of this shitty apartment in Woodside and get in a limo. Oh. And I just quietly tell myself like no matter how much you feel like you're getting put on a pedestal, just remember you were just sent a message that like you're a garbage human being yeah. and don't pretend that you're, you're not. not. And not in a shitty self-defeatist yeah. way but in a way of like – you got here through hard work. Right. We all need wet wipes for our butt. Yeah. Yeah. You're not, you want to fucking eat butt, then you eat shit sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> you you want to go, you want to fucking go to the mountaintop of eating butt, then you go to the valley eating shit. Occasionally. <laughs> oh my God. That is gross. <laughs> um, well, let's talk about that. Messages from, the, we always uh, talk about God. That's a good one though, right? That's a great one. That was a huge don't get cocky. But you see, I believe life. in that. I do too. But I ascribe meaning to that. And people that listen to the show know that I have that type of brain. I add a narrative to things. And I think that's okay. And I, don't th- I think some people attribute that to God or some people attribute that to karma. Yeah. But I think even if that's an internal process you apply to your own life, that's not a bad thing. So what are you doing? In terms of what? God, karma. I've, I guess I, I go back and forth. I, f- I, I sometimes feel like life is too complicated even just scientifically for no one to have designed it you Mm -hmm. know what i mean Mm -hmm. like you should think theoretically it feels to me like the process of evolution would dictate that every second of every day something should be going wrong where we all die you know what i mean Mm -hmm. things should just be happening all the time that alter it's the conditions that allow life are so perfect and specific and balanced and unique 
that so much should be going wrong every second of every day. That's mm-hmm. the one thing that makes me feel like maybe there is somebody keeping their eye on this thing. But more often I'm a total atheist and sort of have this internal level of karma. I think one thing that you know about me is that I kind of view my life as my own story. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So I have no problem kind of like letting experiences write that story. And I think we're similar in that we kind of philosophize about our experiences and look at it like a TV show, like a hero's journey, like a Joseph Campbell type of thing. Exactly. In a sort of pretentious way. Yeah, sure. I've done that since I was so self-obsessed seven years old. Same thing. I would like loved comic books so much. And I think I, that probably rubbed off on me as like, what's my origin story? Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. The ways I interact with the world, how is that I mean, forming bigger decisions about me and mm-hmm. around me that I'm not in control of? You You're know? saying there's all thoughts that I have all the time. Yeah. And think about it. Like when me I talk too. about my divorce, I'm like, that's a radioactive spider. Or I talk about like my parents arguing or whatever. I'm like, that's when I started uh, developing these absurd skills or whatever it is. Yeah. So I, I apply that narrative to me too and continue. My public access show is a similar thing for me. I'm like, this is a stage in a journey. Yeah. This is a stage that people are going to point to at right. some point. Right. So and you're sympathetic. Oh, that's it. Sympathetic to intelligent designer. You're maybe open to some Definitely sort of. Definitely open to it. Yeah. But are, are we. Uh, so you're not praying or believing in necessarily like a classic God. No, but not at this point. You're aware that we might be inside of something bigger. I think I lean more towards that. Yeah. Interesting. I think I lean more towards that because there's also the idea. So much of atheism is driven by science, but I feel like there's a certain level of science that the constant discovery of new amazing things that make no sense and have to sense has to be made of them. Right. Isn't that in and of itself a higher power isn't science in its own right kind of this god that we should all be worshiping you know what i mean Mm -hmm. no i do know what you mean science is scientists are constantly discovering things that they can't explain that they have they have to spend years explaining right that stuff to me is probably guiding us more than we know you know what i mean sure all of that absolutely i that that is something that i get uh from uh, rob bell's books and stuff he talks about like on the subatomic level how particles are like disappearing like the deeper we go and the sub sub subatomic levels we get into once you get into like the core of what's happening like it's just bad shit bananas like things are just teleporting and disappearing and du- yeah. multiplying and disobeying laws of physics and stuff and i was just like it's nuts it's really yeah. nuts i just listened to a radio lab where these scientists built this machine aimed at creating like um physics equations and theorems mm-hmm. shit that i'm too smart to know about and they built this thing not knowing if it would work and then within a day it had discovered on its own one of newton's laws oh my god within 24 hours of being activated it nailed one of newton's laws and they were like this thing works this thing figured out a fucking principle of physics in 24 hours and other scientists started asking them if they could use it and this machine is now producing equations of physics that are true but are so complex that even though they can tell they're true scientists cannot discern what they mean what it can spit out like this this is the this, origin da, story da, da, of a villain <laughs> this 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 and this and they're like oh that works out and is always true but we don't even know what it actually equates to in the real world you know what i mean (laughs) this is indicating basically this machine can produce equations that prove the existence of things we don't yet understand (laughs) isn't that fucking weird (laughs) yes it is it's really weird that they know something's out there and this law proves it and we don't even know what the actual physical effect on the world that this thing 
is proving, but right. something is true. Right, there right, is right. a truth we don't know. Right. Isn't that the definition of a higher power? Yeah. Truths we don't know exist yeah. and are guiding us. My big thing lately has been that we're uh, science. I love science. What you just told me, I love a good science anecdote and all that sort of stuff. And I, I really do believe in the merging of science and facts and stuff with mythology and, and sort of those types of ideas, uh, even though they might be uh, bullshit, you know, empirically or whatever. Uh, it's, it's fun to blend those two things. But what I, what the thing to me, the reason why science has always left me cold is that we're analyzing it from inside of it. And I'm working on a bit about this. It's like we're all in a snow globe and science is counting snowflakes. But at least religion is being like, what are we doing in the snow globe? At least religion is giving us these characters that are like, I've been outside of the snow globe. This is all a thing. Like, no matter how much you break me down, this thing that's talking to you into carbon, into energy, into molecules, subatomic levels, and all that sort of stuff, I'm just like, it doesn't make any sense. It's like... If I want to know about ants, I don't want to ask an ant. You know what I yeah. mean? Like, we're all stuck in it. Yeah. So the more we count the bars in this prison, it doesn't make any more sense to me. I'm just like, how do we get out of this snow globe? Well, it feels like science <laughs> is like the engine of a car. It's like, here's the machine that makes it run. But it, it, doesn't, right. it doesn't do any of the things that... There's no it, why. It doesn't connect all, you with people what? or it yeah. doesn't connect you with yourself. and how you, It doesn't explain to you how you deal with things on your own level it doesn't give you a community right. you know those are all things that you have to choose and opt into that are much closer to the fucking folklore i feel like working at weird new jersey when i was a kid it was all these like local legends and folklores that communities were creating and connecting to that have so much value even though they're not true right you know yes the, i can work at that magazine it's all about ghost stories in New Jersey. I know. But it's like the fact that there's a tree in Bernardsville, New Jersey called the Devil's Tree. And they say that if you touch it, you'll die on the way home. <laughs> Nobody's dying on the way home. But it's still really cool that that exists and that it means something to kids in that area that when you're 15 or 16, you have to go do that to prove your manhood. I think that's great. You have to that, go and touch it? I feel like that's a high school. Right? Like if you're like, you pussy, you won't touch the Devil's Tree. You know what I mean? Like that's like our own little Sounds manhood like a ritual. Line. You want to touch the Devil's Tree? <laughs> <laughs> Tell the story of the peeing. Oh, I worked in kind of in <laughs> my because that's the thing. You're an atheist, which is great, but open. I know why. One reason why. But I'm not a must... cynical atheist. No, I understand. It, I don't it think there's like a guy with a white beard in this. You're an agnostic atheist. Or yeah, so I'm something. What, along you're those one those of those ones. I'm very open to. I understand folklore and you're saying mysticism. Points to know, but maybe. And I also will say, I know this makes me sound sort of batshit maybe to certain people who are total atheists but I like do believe that there's probably elements of like folklore and folk medicine and f all sorts of shit like that that do have tangible effects that I do believe in sure you know what I mean mm -hmm. um, so this is one of those stories <laughs> Yeah, I worked at this place. I wound up writing a book called Weird New York, all about like haunted, haunted places, local legends in New York. And people asked me, you, you enjoyed greatly that I had this job. Yes. And I used to drive around writing articles and taking photographs of scary shit. And you once asked me what the scariest place I ever went was. And I told you about the Frewsburg, the, the Gouda, no, Guernsey Hollow, Guernsey Hollow Cemetery in Frewsburg, New York, which is way out near, <laughs> it's like the southwest corner of New York. And I went to this town, and first I drove up at this gas station. This was before GPS was big. This was before, like, iPhone. This was, like, 2003 I was working on this. Like, I didn't have any of that shit. So I just have to drive into towns, and basically, like, I got an email that said there was a haunted cemetery here. Let me ask around. So I go to this gas station, and I pull up. <laughs> it's and always like, a gas station. Yeah. And I'm like, I'll ask the gas guy. 
and this dude comes out and he straight up doesn't have a face doesn't have a face he's wrapped in fucking bandages from neck to forehead and he has eye holes and when he talks his bandages separate when he talks and there's just no face under there I don't know how to explain it and I was so scared wait you thought you saw no face under it he had no face he had like an eaten away flesh eating it didn't look like he didn't have a face it wasn't like there was a a void (laughs) it was that bugs or bacteria had removed his face <laughs> or fire something had something removed had the face. face he had no. a skull is no. what he had oh, he no. had a skull and, which is tragic and sad, but sure. I, I was also going there. The to legend, go to a haunted The legend cemetery. of this graveyard, the legend of this cemetery was really specific and terrifying. It was that there had been a mentally challenged girl who lived in this tiny little farming village. And when she was born, all these crazy things started happening. And the townspeople realized she was evil. And they brought her into this cemetery in the middle of the woods and stoned her to death. And ever since then, the graveyard's been haunted because they stoned a mentally challenged Harbinger of Harbinger, how do you Har- say? It? Harbinger, yeah. Harbinger of doom. Oh my god! So I was already a little freaked out, and then no face. I didn't ask. <laughs> no him. face puts it over the top. Yeah. So I go to this other uh, gas station. Wait, this... what? Did he told you where to go? No, I didn't ask him. I was like, I don't want this motherfucker knowing where I'm going. I was like, I do not want this guy to have any idea of my plan or where I'm going. You know what I mean? Yes. So I went to a different he gas said station. No to no face. I said no. To no, no, no face. face. So I go to a different gas station. This girl's working there. And I walk in. And I'm like, this might sound crazy, but I'm here. I'm a photographer. I'm looking to take pictures of this place I heard about, the Guernsey Hollow Cemetery. And she's like, you don't want to go there. It's fucked up. And I was like, well, I'll take my chances. Like, That's I'm, what she said. Yeah, immediately. And I'm like, how do I get there? She's like, I've never been there. And I'm like, but people do. It's a thing. She's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Kids go there, but I've never wanted to fuck around. It, it's, too, it's too fucked up. And I was like, well, you know, I'll take my chances. Like, can you point me towards it? And she's like, I don't know where it is. And I see they have, like, it's a small town. They have, like, a map of the town painted on the wall inside this gas station. I'm looking, and there's a Guernsey Hollow Road. And I'm looking for the Guernsey Hollow Cemetery. And I was like, oh, it must be on Guernsey Hollow Road, so it looks like I have to take this road and that road. Can you tell me, like, where I am? And she goes, I have no idea. And I was like, I just mean, like, what's the name of the street that we're on right now? And she goes, I don't know. And I was like, but you you work here. She's like, yeah, I have no idea what the name of this street is. And I was like, this town's fucking strange, man. And I walked outside and it was Main Street. It was Main Street. And this woman who worked there did not know she worked on Main Street. So it was, was called Main Street Main Grocery. <laughs> it was fucked up, man. Everything was just a little off. It just felt off, you know? So I realized I'm on Main Street. I'm like, okay, I have to go here and here. So I go to Guernsey Hollow Road and there's just like houses spread out on it. And then I get to the end and there's a dirt road turns into a total dirt road and it's like sun's starting to go down at this point and I'm like I have I'm not coming back here it's too scary I need to get these pictures so I'm going down this dirt road as fast as I can there's like a couple cabins at the beginning and then there's nothing then there's like an abandoned school bus that's all burnt out sitting in the woods and then there's like an abandoned house like crazy and i'm driving and driving it's getting more and more remote and i've got at this point i have jersey plates on my fucking nissan and I drive and I find – I see the cemetery up on a hilltop in the woods and there's a little road that you can turn off to go there. But I realize someone has taken like the granite stones that are the entrance to the cemetery and pushed them over so you can't drive. So I got to get out and walk through these fucking woods. Oh. And immediately I'm like, I haven't passed any other cars. This is desolate as shit and I've got a little tiny Nissan with jersey plates and if anybody comes back here – 
no one will ever know what happens to me yeah, here yeah, yeah, if yeah. anything bad happens yeah, yeah, it's yeah, fucking yeah. no face you know yeah. what I mean like whatever you just the rear view and there's old no face dude I'm waiting for it you yeah. know so I sprint up into the cemetery and it's got it's enclosed with black iron gates kind of in a square with one entrance so again I get to that entrance and I'm like so if somebody comes up here if there's two men that follow me up here one stands in this entrance yeah and I cannot escape I'm oh surrounded by eight foot high iron bars with spikes on the top I mean uh, I'm putting myself in a cage so scary and then I look and every fucking grave is defaced every single gravestone has been kicked over or spray painted on every single one and I'm like that's just bad news that's just bad karma you know <laughs> so I'm walking on a hilltop and I'm getting all these pictures of this, these graves and I'm just like go 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 and there's this giant cross, probably 10 feet tall, at the top of the cemetery. And I'm like, all right, that's my last thing. And I get up to the top of it, and I see that surrounding the bottom of it are the remains of a bonfire. Like someone has been actually coming here and lighting bonfires around this giant stone cross. Like who knows if it's kids fucking around or if it's a fucking satanic cult. Somebody's lighting fires around this stone cult in the middle of this fucking grave where every grave has been desecrated. Like this is fucked up, you know? So at that point, I'm just looking around and I look and I've never had this experience. Every hair on my arm stood up straight, completely vertical, like for real. And I just got such a bad feeling, got goosebumps everywhere. And keep in mind, this was my job. Like I've been inside weird places. I've been inside about a dozen abandoned mental hospitals. I've been inside abandoned mental hospitals by myself. I was once held at gunpoint by a guy who caught me inside an abandoned house up in the woods. This was more scary than having a guy point a shotgun in my face. It was so such a visceral, instinctive fear. I started thinking I was hearing shit beyond the gates out in the woods. I was like, oh, my God. And just my instinct. I took my last picture, and my instinct, like my internal monologue was just straight up like, run, go, go. Like I have a thing where when I'm in real crisis moments, I'm actually, I think, very good. Like I think in the same way that as an improv teacher, I'm able to kind of be a leader. Like I have a leader instinct that can kick in. And my internal monologue was like, get the fuck out of here fast, run, just go, get back to the car. And I took off, like something was wrong. Something was threatening me and I felt it. And I've been in places like this so many times. Mm -hmm. And I mean, 99, pretty much every experience, but this one, you show up and you're like, oh, this place looks scary as shit. Cool, let's take some pictures. And this one was like, something's wrong, something's off, go, go, go. And I ran back to my car running as fast as I fucking could. And then right before I got my car... I was just like, oh no, and just put, pulled my pants down and just started fear pissing everywhere, like, like <laughs> animal pissing. Like, like it was not like I had to pee. It was like something about my body was like, spread this urine, this urine, just spread urine. It will ward off like some ancient caveman shit. Like cavemen, maybe cavemen used to like piss at the entrance of their caves so other people or things would come in, whatever it was. And I just peed forever. Just like, like, so scared, covered in goosebumps, my hair standing up, just spraying, like, violent streams of piss in every direction. And I got my car, and I was like, this is the last time I'm ever going to fucking Frewsburg, man. <laughs> I'm never going to Frewsburg again in my life. This is a land full of half, half-faced men and women who don't know what street they work on. And scary fucking graveyards. I also, did I ever tell you, I wrote about this place. Nick Kroll told me about this place. Nick Kroll did a show at Colgate. Oh, no, he had friends that went to Colgate University. And there's this town right near there called Ariskany Falls. And there's all these houses that have these butterflies outside. And the rumor is that all the members of, everybody who has a butterfly is a member of this cult. 
and they all sleep with each other and have babies. And at this point, it's been going on long enough that it's like incestuous, like they're all related. And he had heard this thing from his friends who worked at Colgate. And I found Colgate student newspaper wrote about it. And I went there and it was a real fucking like weird. It felt like a like a deliverance town. You know what I mean? It felt like it felt like the town they stop in on the way out into the woods at the beginning of an Eli Roth movie. Like, you know what I mean? Like the town where they buy their supplies and the guys like you don't want to go in them woods. You know what yeah. I mean? Like it felt like that town. And I wrote about that place and people called my parents home threatening me and my family. What? People found my parents' phone number and were like, tell your son to stay quiet about a risk. Like, stop saying bad stuff about a risk and he falls or there might be consequences. Really scary shit. Wait, the butterflies are people? The butterflies are like, it's like I live in this house and I want to let the other members of this incest cult know that this is a place where they, where we dwell. Uh-huh. So that here's my signal that, here, it's like the signal. Oh. It's like, it's like, it, it's like. Being, it's like if if every if it's like if you had like a certain tattoo that identified you as a gang member. It's like that's the that's the sigil that marks you as a part of this weird cult. Wow! And they someone called my parents' house and was like, I'm sure it was just because I was saying that their town is a bunch of people who fucks their relatives, right? But someone did call my parents home because of that job and threaten them. Oh my god! I was once almost raped in the woods because of that job. What? I never told you that. Wait, was that the one where you run into the guys in the woods? The guys pinned me in the woods in a pickup truck, and the one guy told me he was going to have sex with me. <laughs> Wait, is that the one where you were pinned down and someone said, I'm going to rape you? Not physically pinned. Like, he, in his pickup truck, blocked my car from leaving and then yelled at me a bunch and then told me he was going to have sex with me. What? Yeah. This all for, like, an obscure magazine? <laughs> in Jersey, it's huge, man. We were huge in Jersey. It was a great job. Why did they have the, the gun in your face? We went in, there was this abandoned home for, like, wayward boys. It was, like, where kids from, it was, like, way up in the mountains, and it was basically, like, where kids who were bad from the city would get sent for the summer to, it was, like, reform school, basically. Yeah. And we were up there, and it was abandoned. It was scary as fuck. I fell down the steps at one point because it was so dilapidated, which my boss laughed in my face. (laughs) I was the only employee. It was two owners and me. I was the one employee of this magazine. And then we were in the basement of this abandoned fucking place. We came around a corner at one point and there was a dummy hanging from its neck and we thought we found a fucking suicide. It was so scared. So we're already on edge and then the nightmare fucking scenario, we're in an abandoned house in the basement and all of a sudden we just hear a creak and then we hear footsteps above us. And it was, you just hear like, when the door opens and we just stopped and looked at each other, me and my boss, this girl who lived up that way was showing us around and we all looked at each other and then you just heard like, ding, ding, and you heard someone walking. And my boss, very wisely, was like, someone's in here, just so you know, don't get scared, we're down here. And we just heard ding, 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 and then the door to the basement opened and we heard jet, ding, ding, down the steps and it was this old man with a big gray beard and a shotgun. And he just pointed it right at me and he's like, what the fuck do you guys think you're doing here? And it was like, fuck, like, fuck. And my boss was like, dude, we're just taking pictures. We're not up to anything. We're not vandalizing it. We're just taking pictures because it's a beautiful building. And the guy was like, you're not supposed to be here. No one's supposed to be here. And my boss was like, are you the owner of this building? And the guy was like, no, but I know the owners and maybe I'll give them a call. And my boss, he was so smart. He was just like, well, look, you can call the police if you want. We trespass. We'll take the tickets for trespassing. But you pointing a gun at us is breaking way more laws than trespassing. So if you want to call them, 
we're going to tell him about that too. And if you want to just have us all walk away, we're happy to leave. And the guy let us go because he realized I'm threatening murder on this group of people. Yeah, and not, not in your house. That was really scary. Holy that was a really shit. scary one. Whoa. Yeah. I'm trying to think. I was also once in our friend, you know, Katie Dippold. Yeah. I went to college with Katie. Who you can vouch is like this tiny little pale mousy girl. And I was in love with her. Uh-huh. In love with Katie Dippold, who is now, I put her in her first improv group. And she is now a millionaire because she wrote The Heat, which she gave me a part in, which was very nice. <laughs> Continuing my trend of former people who I mentored in ah. comedy who are exceeding me, which is great <laughs> and wonderful to see. And I have so much love for Katie. But she used to love scary shit. And I brought her to this abandoned mental hospital. And we were in the basement. And she, we were there and we heard someone walking around above us. And we didn't have anything with us. And she reached down and picked up this jagged piece of slate on the ground and was like, if whoever that is approaches us, please kill them. She was so scared. She was telling me to kill someone if they approached us. And we found in that one, we found a nurse's log from the 70s, handwritten on the floor that was full of all these accounts of patient abuse. It was fucking crazy, man. It was a great job. It's the best job I'll ever have. Wait, what happened with the man on the slate? That, that we heard the guy leave and we were like, oh, fuck, thank God. Because that was with Katie. You know what I mean? I'm the type of fucking weirdo asshole that I'm like, if I have to kill someone who attacks me in an abandoned mental hospital, I'll do it. But I don't want to have to watch Katie Dippold be involved. Yeah, sure. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, no one changes. trying to protect this girl. We're both like 21, 22. Oh. It's like, fuck, am I going to get my friend killed? Like, I don't right. care if I get killed. Who cares? Right. You know what I mean? This is a fucking hilarious, cool way to die. <laughs> I don't want her to get killed because I have this fucking oh insane job. Oh, my God. I wonder God. if she remembers that. She probably remembers that. I'm guessing she remembers that. <laughs> <laughs> well, that brings us back to God a little bit. You're not being afraid to die, it sounds like. Not too bad. Do you think when we die, it's just over? I don't know. I don't know. I think But it doesn't so. concern you. I've been weirdly... When I was a kid, I was terrified of death, and I dwelled on it and thought about it all the time. I'm just old enough that I remember the last... I feel like I was alive, alive for that last stretch of the Russians might just fucking kill us all. Yeah, you know what I mean? Sure. Like nuclear bombs might kill us all. That's still a thing that we think about and is like a fact of life. I remember being really scared of dying. I was terrified of planes. I constantly thought I was going to die in a plane. Just the other night, two different times in my adult life, once like a few days ago, I was flying home from Chicago and was sleeping and woke up because there was terrible turbulence. And I woke up and very calmly was like, I've always known I was going to die in a plane crash very at peace with it and that happened last year I was flying to Brazil that's how I got out of my insane fucking MDMA Adderall summer yeah a friend of mine was like do you need to fucking beat it uh, beat it because I'm going to he's a filmmaker he's like I'm going to Brazil and I went with him and we were on that plane and I woke up and it was one of these ones where it was like bouncing on the turbulence and I was like okay I've always thought I've always known I was going to die in a plane crash just totally at peace with it so I don't know I find it to be a but I've been scared I've been more scared of death lately I've been thinking about it again. I was at peace with it for a while. And just the past year or so, I'm starting. Maybe it's because I'm happier. I was going to say, yeah, you got a duvet cover. And I, it, that, it should be printed on a duvet cover. <laughs> Caution, you will you once again fear death. <laughs> now that you know you're sleeping in a dog bed, yes. dying won't seem like a sort of pleasant yeah. option. <laughs> the peace of the grave no longer <laughs> applies for oh, you. Yeah. Weird that now that you're not like suicidal, that death is scary. Again, right. You know? And it's funny because like when you were in that basement with Katie, yeah. that changes it for you. You're like, I'm okay with dying, but I don't. There's stakes. You know, there's a little bit of an implication, at least for me in the story, that something sexual could happen to her or something, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. With a girl. 
Yeah. When I'm with a girl, I think that's our caveman thing. We're like, we don't want anything like that happening. Well, the last Although, as you've proven, men are also uh, assaulted or threatened to be assaulted. I mean, but the nightmare scenario is that, is that you're in an abandoned mental hospital yep. basement yep. and some lunatic with a fucking axe chops your legs off. And then... And, wa- and you watch them rape your friend while you bleed out. I, I, yep. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so speechless. Yes. Yes, yes. The, and you're just trying but to crawl towards them, are. and then he stops raping her to chop your arms off. <laughs> oh my god, that is a gift for something really dark. www.thechrisgethardshow.com. Ah, <laughs> we got to end on something uh, uh, pleasant. Um, that is so terrifying. We lasted longer. How how much of you lasted longer than ninety? Because you knew I was insecure about it. Zero. Awesome. In fact, I'm I late. You All lie. these texts are because I'm late to this it's dumb thing. I don't okay. want to do. Which is fine. That's nice. I'm just letting you know that's how much I'm enjoying it. And I know you wouldn't lie. I know that if you were like, yeah, I stayed mostly out of obligation, no, you'd have no... I would, I would tell you'd you. Tell it would me be right funny to my Because face. it would be funny. Yeah. Um, uh, not, not at all. Zero percent. Zero, and we didn't talk about suicide, and it sounds like you have something valuable to say about that. <laughs> Do you want to say something? Well, I've actually... I've weirdly become like a... Not on a... A poster child? I was asked last year, I was asked to speak at a suicide prevention conference for like counselors, college counselors, because I wrote this Tumblr thing because I had a fan write me anonymously saying he was going to kill himself and wanted to know how I had dealt with that stuff. And uh, I was happy to put it all out there. I was happy to just like put my experiences out there with that stuff. And I was happy to sort of own up to the fact that that happens and you shouldn't be ashamed of it. And like, just kind of said, in my experience, there are beautiful things that will happen and get you out of it. And you're always going to go, I'm not going to bullshit you. Like, if you're the type of person who feels this way sometimes, you'll probably feel this way again. But if, you're, if you really think you're strong enough to fucking turn off every instinct telling you to be alive and jump off a bridge, you're probably also strong enough to keep living and push through it and hmm. all that stuff. And I've just been very frank and honest about that. Especially, weirdly, like, the Tumblr for the Chris Gethard show is, like, half gifts of, like... Of like me and Shannon O'Neill fucking eating cold spaghettios and then spitting them on each other, and half me urging people to stay alive and look for happiness in their yeah. lives. It's a well, weird combination. I love that combination. Yeah, me too. I'm happy to do it. You know, if for I don't for some reason people feel comfortable emailing me and letting me know that. Shit. Well, it's that weird thing. You're a good you're a good port in the storm. Like I said, I try something about. I'm something happy about to do you. it. I'm happy to I'm happy to serve that role. So we know? can read that on chrisgethardshow.com. If you if you Google my name, one of the like you know how the things pop yeah, up. Yeah. One of the top things that will pop up in your Google toolbar is Chris Gethard suicide. Really? It is Chris Gethard suicidal. Oh, comes wow. up when you yeah, Google yeah. my name. So it's findable. Thing. Let's let, let's not even water it down. But I'm glad I got to hear just a little bit about that because I think that's lovely. Yeah. Um, Thank so you. To, to cleanse, not there's something needing uh, negative cleansing, but we always like to end on something upbeat because we talk about uh-huh. God and death and what happens yeah. when we die, and, and sometimes we talk about severed limbs and a friend <laughs> being attacked in a mental institution that I'm going to be haunted by forever. Uh, even though because you know Katie, I know you can so see I got the whole, whole picture in your mind, yeah. and I know the lunatic. I got him real good. He was like got a scarecrow mask. <laughs> anyway. Uh, <laughs> How, what is the hardest time you've laughed is a question we like to ask. Great question. Yeah. The hardest time I've laughed. Or one of them. One of the hardest times I've laughed that comes to mind is one of the things that I can, th- I mean, like, you know, things when I was a little, you always laugh harder at little kid things sure. than anything else, right? And I can think of stuff like that. Probably one of the hardest times I ever laughed was um, my brother bought the David Letterman book of top ten lists. Mm-hmm. And I 
when he was done with it and had thrown it aside, I read it and I remember like crying laughing from those. But one of my hardest, the hardest I've ever left probably in the experience of doing comedy <laughs> is when we started doing the Chris Gethard show, you know, we just do these experiments and stuff is kind of stunt driven sometimes. And we had done a show where everybody in the cast wore an adult diaper and chugged water on stage. And the idea was whoever pisses the most, whoever's diaper weighs the most wins a prize at the end. And my friend Don Finelli, who's like a super lovable Italian dude, he was just like, none of us could do it. We all had pee anxiety. I peed a little bit. Shannon peed a little bit. Will Hines couldn't pee. And Finelli, like halfway through the show, was just like, I'm going. I'm still going. I am still going. It was so clearly real. And I got to, when we all went, we went to the back hallway and we were all going to take our diapers and put them in plastic bags and then come back and weigh them. And I was back there and Dom went out before me and you know those hallways behind UCB, they're like fucking, they look like fucking like death chambers, you know? I walked back just as he was taking his diaper off and from behind, I just saw him un... un Clasped the Velcro on his diaper and it was so heavy that a shower of piss hit the ground. And then he looked back at me like this, like, like shame, like shame in his eyes, such genuine, like childlike shame. Like I did something wrong here. And there was just piss on the floor. And I just like doubled over laughing. Like in the middle of a show, there's a sold out audience. There's 200 people at UCB, like standing room only. And I'm in the back hallway watching this friend of mine. Just like take off a pissy diaper and look at me with this fucking look. It was just such a weird, funny experience. Just a deposit of urine, a splash yeah, and dropped on the floor. And just this sort of thing. Like, All at once. And it's like my name is on this. Like my name has come to be known for this fucking weird, yeah. not even just abstract, like ill-advised stuff sometimes. Yes, yes. And then also sometimes very uplifting stuff. Yes. But experimental shit. And I'm like... This guy, there's piss all over the floor because my friend Don Finelli joined the cast of right. the Chris Gethard show. But there's something, there's that beauty you're talking about. You didn't know that was going to happen. It was a wonderful, and that's quiet something... moment he and I had together. Yes. And you backstage. never know. In a gross, weird area. Like you said, it looks like a death trap. In these, this hallway filled with roaches and death and dirt. And there, there's a gift from life. Yeah. Oh, I remember another one. Please. My parent, my grandparents, their 50th wedding reunion. My, pa- my family was not rich. Everybody came back from all my cousins who lived in Nevada and Montana, my uncle from Hawaii, all my cousins. It's very rare to get my mom's whole side of the family back in Jersey. <laughs> and they rented the Elks Lodge, you know, like nothing fancy, but like we rented the Elks Lodge and we had a dinner. And like two thirds of the way through, my uncle who married into the family, he married my aunt. Mm-hmm. So he's already kind of tangential. His sister, who none of us really know, grabs a microphone and it becomes evident almost immediately that she is like blindingly drunk. Yeah. And she's like, she barely knows anybody. I don't even know why she was there. And she's like, Paul and Nancy, you stayed together for a whole decade. And she's like drunkenly rambling. This relative stranger is drunkenly rambling to my, my grandparents about their anniversary. And she launches into somewhere over by the, somewhere over the rainbow. 
like full on acapella singing it, like all the verses that aren't even in the Wizard of Oz. Like it's going on and on, and she's shrieking it. She doesn't have a good voice. No music in a fucking Elks Lodge in West Orange, New Jersey. My uncle, who married into the family, was like turning red in a way where you're like, oh, he might actually kill his sister. He's so ashamed and embarrassed. And I looked at my older, I had these older cousins from California who I thought were the coolest, and I looked over and my cousin Michael, there were tears like. Tears streaming down his face. He was laughing so hard. And you could just see everybody like quaking with laughter. And I looked up at my grandfather, who was at the head of the table. He's this old Irish dude. Not like does, He barely ever spoke. And I just looked up at my grandfather. And he was just staring her down. And he just quietly reached up and turned off his hearing aid. So he didn't have to hear it anymore. And I remember it was just like every single person in the room was laughing. We all saw Pop turn off his fucking hearing aid. And this woman was just like, and when the little bluebirds sing, and just knowing, like, my uncle's so humiliated. It was like a real defining experience for everybody in the family. It's like the thing we all still talk about today. What a gift. It was that great. Woman, that was random great. woman gave you. I don't think I've seen her since. <laughs> I've never seen that person since. Oh my god, that's incredible. That was a good one. Thank you, man. Thanks for doing this. I, I would talk to you much longer. Please, dude. It's always good to see you. Thank it's you for all, having we'll, we'll me. We'll do it again. I think it was fun, right? It How was do you amazing. Think it stands up. I'm insecure already because this is a very popular podcast. This is a major press hit for me. Ah, uh, <laughs> I um, I loved it. I have no reason to lie to you. That's awesome. Other than maybe social discomfort, but I loved it. I had a great time. And I love you very deeply. I do love and you. And I as do well. want to say um, what Conan said is so true. You're doing Thanks, great man. work. Thank you. And here's to pendulums. And here's to that Thank weird post apocalyptic future where your mutant congealed thing in a jar is going to become incredibly relevant. And I really do think that your whole work ethic and your artistic approach to comedy is going to be rewarded and also a Thank rewarding you. life. For and you. I will say to you, all ego and insecurity, which is a natural thing aside, sure. I have such, um, such joy knowing that I'm going to watch you spread and explode in a way you haven't before. I mean that genuinely. Thanks, man. I feel like that's a very fun thing to see. And it's cool to see whenever it happens to a good guy. Thanks, man. I think it's such a good thing, you know? Well, I appreciate that very much. And one time you went on four dates. We didn't even tell that story. Four dates, 24 hours. But you went on four dates in 24 hours. I'm glad we didn't get into it too specific. It's not that to. bad. It wasn't that That's bad. That's the story. And I, I feel like I just want to say I wasn't being a total asshole. I don't think that story sounds like you were being an asshole. You're allowed to date more than one person at and a I time. And ca- I called my friend Mike D from college, and I was like, should I, do, should I go on two dates in a day? And he's like... You're not a bad guy, and you want to have that experience. Yeah. I bet that would be a cool life experience, and you're not going to be a bad guy to these women. And yeah. then when the third one happened, I was like, dude, there's another girl who can only go on a date that day. And he's like, you got you to gotta do this. You're he's not like, a bad guy. Just live. Just live and see how this feels. And then he asked Ad-Rock for a second opinion. MCA. <laughs> 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 well, would you say uh, keep it crispy? That's how we end the show. I would absolutely say keep it crispy. And you did. I did. <laughs> keep it crispy. Yeah. yeah. We, we are. We are. Keeping it crispy. Yeah. Thank you, Chris. Thank you, Andrew, our New York tech. We didn't even talk about how fans of my public access show want you to come on so and I can fight. fight you. Yeah, we fight. You should come on sometime when you're in New York. Okay. You should. You'll have fun. I'm almost never in New York. I'm in New York right now. That's the joke. Were you here last night? Yeah, but I had a show. At what time? I did Big Terrific. Okay. Could my it, my show was on 11. Really? You've done Big Terrific before? 
I've never done your show before. You would love my show. We I had Bobby on last of night. Of course, though. I would love to be The on whole the thing show. was built around Bobby Moynihan last night. When I night. see human fish, I'm starstruck. That's crazy. I love, I love human fish. <laughs> People do love the human fish. We got this new guy named Messenger Bag. He's the new hit amongst our fans. <laughs> well, I'm a purist. All I want is human fish. Uh, well, thanks. Honestly, we could talk. We'll do it yes. again. Is thank what I'm you. We'll do yeah, it again. We'll best. do a live one again. We'll do a one-on-one. Whatever you want to do. Thank you for having me. Of course. Thank you for doing it. Thanks. Now leaving Nerdist.com.